Our question is how we moved from a condition in 1500 in which it was hard not to believe in God, to our present situation just after 2000 where this has become quite easy for many. A way of putting our present condition is to say that many people are happy living for goals which are purely imminent, they live in a way that takes no account of the transcendent. What I'm proposing here is a two-stage account. In the first stage, we developed an outlook and mode of life, mainly at first confined to elites, which clearly distinguished imminent from transcendent, or, to speak the intellectual dialect of Western Christendom, natural from supernatural. I don't only mean that this distinction was drawn in theological theory. What is important for us is not the theoretical distinction, but a sorting out in experience, by which it became possible to relate to certain realities as purely natural, and disintricate them from the transcendent whereby it eventually became possible to see the immediate surroundings of our lives as existing on this natural plane, however much we might believe that they indicated something beyond. Welcome to the Big Readcast. I'm Bill. I'm Joel. If you're just joining us, this is a podcast where two friends read a very long book, that is to say 500 pages or longer, and then talk about it for between two and three hours. Um, <laughs> it's very unique in podcasts in that it's a podcast where two guys who don't really know what they're talking about talk for a while. We think it's a new format. <laughs> it's really going to take off. Uh, this time, I think, at least I feel, I guess I'll let Joel free speak for himself, like I really don't know what I'm talking about with this book. This time we read Charles Taylor's book, A Secular Age, which was written in 2007. Uh, it's a pretty intimidating tome. Obviously, all of our books are, are lengthy, but this one's 850 pages of theology, philosophy, history, and also anything else Charles Taylor wants to talk about. So <clears throat> I think we, we always say this, that, oh, it's very hard to summarize this book because yeah. that's kind of the nature of the project. But I think we're basically not even going to try this time. Um, I think I think Joel will say a few words about who Charles Taylor is and why we chose to read it, and then I think we're just going to dive right in. I don't know. What do you, what do you think? I think that's what we're going to do. <laughs> I, I, I guess so. So yeah, this is definitely... You, we, we actually mentioned this when we were talking um, about what we were going to do next for our next big read, that you know, I, you know, the length is one thing, right? That we're going to do a 500-page book for our next big read, but we, we both agreed that like we had to have something that was less dense, because the problem with this book was not its length. Although, I mean, a 777-page philosophy book, you know, it reads about like it sounds. Hey, wait, right? wait, hey, Joel, hey, Joel. Do you <laughs> yeah. know what that tells me? That you think it's 777 pages and I think it's 850 pages? Tells me you didn't read the notes. That's what that tells How me. How dare I read you? The notes. <laughs> How dare you? I have, <laughs> I have the notes. I have the notes edited with starred things that I should follow up on, which I am never going to follow up on. By the <laughs> never way. ever ever going to do. <laughs> it's like I like I have notes that are like read this guy, and it's like I'm not going to remember who that guy is in a month. I guarantee it. Um, <laughs> so yeah, the density of this book. We we both talked about probably the last book we read where it kind of took us. 
you know, you and I are both pretty fast readers where it took us more time to get through it. The last book that like that was probably Black Lamb and Gray Falcon, except Black Lamb and Gray Falcon, its prose isn't dense. It's just covering such a huge range of things that you kind of get lost in the interplay of ideas. Whereas this one, it is both a huge range, but it's also a lot more technical, right? The language is consistently jargon filled even when it's kind of casual and he expects you to kind of remember even as he reminds you a thousand times what things are he also reminds you because he wants you to remember how they how they play together anyway so yeah this book was definitely i think uh i mean it was honestly one of the slower books i've i've read like one of the books i've had more trouble getting through ever and it's not meant to be like a criticism it's just i don't read books like this anymore and in college i often didn't finish them because i was in college and lazy so okay Charles Taylor, um, he is a philosopher. Um, he spent a lot of his time at Oxford when he was younger, and then, of course, at McGill in Canada when he was older. I say, of course, because, you know, he is Canadian. Um, he is uh, Catholic, um, which bears in this book because, of course, a secular age is about um, belief and unbelief, and it, it takes a very broad philosophical view, but I mean, he definitely, I think, is, is coming at it from a Catholic perspective in the sense that he wants to expand a certain narrative that, you know, everyone has, but that certainly has been entrenched by, you know, sort of an atheistic default or whatever. Anyway, he, he's a big deal. He's a big deal, period. He's won um, several big prizes. This is from his Wikipedia page. I know a few of these, but they're all kind of, you know, philosophy prizes, basically. Um, one's not, but it's the Kyoto Prize, the Templeton Prize, the Bergruen Prize for Philosophy, John W. Kluge Prize. He, he's kind of done it all. Um, and this book came about through... Uh, he gave lectures back in the day um, at St. Andrews. And it's part of what a series called the Gifford Lectures. I just say that in case you want to look up the Gifford Lectures. They're really interesting. William Jaynes gave them years and years ago. A lot of good books have come from that. Anyway, okay. So this really is everything Charles Taylor knows <laughs> about the Western world as an argument for thinking differently about our past and our present moment. Um, and, and, and honestly, like that sounds very broad, but like, I, I wish I could almost make it broader. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> because, <laughs> yes. because like, I'm going to give a little detailed summary, not much detail because this book, you have to have a huge bird's eye view because he goes so intricate on the arguments he's making and the sub arguments that support his arguments. Yeah. So his project is very, is huge. And, and one way that you could actually, I think, put his, motto into words is he's trying to dissipate the false aura of the obvious again that's as big as it can sound so like how do we think about a world he wants to take away whatever feels natural and give it its kind of historical and philosophical specificity so what this book is about is it's a story of secularization basically in 1500 belief in the North Atlantic, Western, Latin Christendom world, belief in God was default. In 2000, about when he was writing this book, things have completely switched. The default naivete is, uh, if not unbelief, then a place that is removed from belief, right? Where you go and search for your belief. We've moved from a place of belief to a place of secularization. That's nothing new. Um, Part of his project, though, is that he wants to dismantle or disrupt or kind of redefine the argument that is usually made 
or the story that's usually told from for about how we got from there in 1500 to here in 2000. So far, so good, Bill. <laughs> I think that's yeah, it's pretty <laughs> yeah, much right. I, I have more. I just <laughs> I always make you do the summary, so I you know I this is terrible. I'm making you do it next time. Okay, I, I just so, made you do this one to understand how hard it is. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I mean. That's what I mean. Um, okay, so weirdly, so for anyone who's like a sci-fi geek out there, a, a short reference point. So he's building his argument in opposition to a, you know, to our more default argument of like, how do we go from a place of religion or a civilization of religion to a civilization of secularity, a place where belief is not, you know, um, practiced widely by individual persons or affiliated officially with public spaces. Those are the first kind of two definitions of secularity that we can all agree on and make sense. And there's a story that goes like, humanity has basically continually progressed. We've continually shed things we didn't need to be functional. And one of those things was a sort of public religion or a, you know, private practice, you know, kind of mandate even. We've shed that as we've come to know about things like evolution or even the materialism necessary to keep society running, the economy, various things have made it so the belief is superfluous. And he thinks that that's wrong. At least that's not sufficient. Maybe some of that is necessary to talk about how we got from a place of belief to a place of unbelief, but that those materialistic arguments essentially are not um, sufficient to do the whole work. And part of that's because he wants to look at secularization in a third term. So if secularization is, you know, he gives three definitions, two we're familiar with, which I already mentioned kind of belief has become void in public spaces, right? In America, this is more complicated, and he he talks about that a little bit, but, like, basically, you know, we're not a theocracy, even in sort of, you know, um, rhetoric, for the most part. There's been a decline in private belief and private practices. Those two things, he says, well and good. What he wants to get to the heart of is how the change in the conditions of belief have come about. So the horizon of what we think it is possible to believe the limits of what we think it is natural to believe, those have shifted. And he wants to basically show how this is not a subtraction narrative, where we've shed the superfluous skin of religion, but in fact it's been a construction that was, you know, kind of compiled by various previous eras and various causations, and also is partly mysterious, but that it is a movement toward making something, not shedding something. There's, if I was going to give one more kind of like way to think about this book, I kind of said it earlier, there's two big movements in this, uh, in this tome, this absolute devastating tome that took over my life. Um, <laughs> one is how did we get here? How did we get from a place of unbelief in 1500 to a place, sorry, a place of belief in 1500 to a place of unbelief default, or at least menu of belief default in 2000? That's a history question. The second part is more, what does here look like? What are the conditions of belief in North Atlantic former Latin Christendom? And that's kind of a clumsy way of saying it, the North Atlantic former Latin Christendom. He's happy to say the West or Western civilization. And I think it is important for this book that, that his argument, even though he sometimes will reference other parts of the world or traditions as a contrast or comparison, he really is talking about the West. He's talking about Europe. He's talking about Canada and North America. And that's pretty much all he's talking about, right? Yeah, I mean, he, he will occasionally reference other parts of the world. And I, I think this gets him out of a lot of trouble. Like at one point pretty Agreed. early on, 
he's talking to the- he's talking about general theories of religion and he says none of these really satisfy like our understanding of what religion is thankfully i don't care and don't have to because i'm not trying to explain all religion everywhere i'm trying to talk about pretty much Catholicism and Protestantism in Europe and North America starting at about 1500. So yeah. I don't have to have a theory of religion. I have a theory of Christendom that has to make reference to other things that it was aware of, but I don't have to explain, you know, Buddhism. I don't have to. Yeah, basically. <laughs> well, and it's, it's, it's interesting because he does, it's funny, like time and again, as big as this book is, it's big. The density part is what makes it big because he goes so deep into a question. Like you and I talked about, you know, part of the difficulty of the first part of this book especially is his kind of constant barrage of historical facts or figures. You know, it's like, yeah, the Edict of Nantes, I, I, I definitely heard of that. <laughs> I'm not sure I, I can tell you everything about, you know, the French Revolution that he would like me to know so that his facts back up his arguments. Um, and so, but the broad argument, in some ways, it's also very limited. He is not trying to define religion as it exists everywhere, but just in this kind of, you know, yeah, development from 1500 to 2000 in this part of the world. And what's which is weirdly, like, by the way, implicitly, it is sort of a weird argument that, like, there is a coherence to Western civilization that I think sometimes um, people are worried about. And I I think he does a good job throughout the book in taking ideas that could either be obvious or cliches or have been misused by a polemicist here or there. And he kind of redeems the idea of like, look, when we say Western civilization, we're talking about this like kind of coherent notion that came about through, yeah, Christianity, basically the marriage of Christianity and power. And it's like, it's okay to talk about that without valorizing or demonizing it at the outset, right? That we should be able to understand it as our primary goal before we maybe devolve into like, what should we do about it? And I honestly, like this book is explicitly against polemical positions in a way that can maybe sound fusty, but I found it pretty invigorating. So, okay, so that's like the 30,000 foot view (laughs) that still took me like 10 minutes to get through, um, of what this book is about. Do you want to add anything to that, Bill? Or is that pretty okay? No, I think that's pretty much the summary. So it's both a historical... And this is... Joel's already said this, but just to sort of summarize again, it's both a historical project. So it'll say, here's what people thought and believed based on these sources. And it's also an analytical project, uh, both of our current era and of sort of how this thought has developed. So he will bounce back and forth between the two. A lot of the book is more or less in chronological order. But he will still bounce back and forth between some writers in the 18th century and then contrast them with what's happened since 1960, which can make it occasionally uh, confusing to read. But I think he he's, he does a pretty good job. I think it's usually pretty straightforward to follow his general through line. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, I yeah. agree. So I think what we're going to do from here is basically just pick some individual ideas we thought were important and, and dig through them. And then, you know, eight hours will have passed and we will have gotten through the first few chapters. So that'll be good. Well, and so what's, so what's crazy with this book is like, I, so I, I guess before going forward as like a pitch to keep listening and as a pitch for this book, <laughs> well, because like we really can't summarize it, right? This book is actually beyond summary. But what's fun about it is I feel like he continually gives you a language or a richness to talk about things specifically that I, I know is like, that's the obvious benefit of, of education or of study or of philosophy in particular, which is obsessed with kind of matching, you know, language and, you know, whatever to the right idea. 
But um, I, I found that honestly, like for how much this book was sometimes overwhelming in the process of reading it, I, I found it a relief once I had gotten through to like think back on things. And I, and I feel like honestly, I've only had the book finished for since like Tuesday. And I feel like everything I'm coming across, I'm going, hmm, I believe this reminds me of, you know, his theory about Camus' heroism as an anti-Nietzschean strain of anti-humanism as the triangle of whatever, whatever. And like, it sounds dumb if I say it out loud because it sounds pretentious, but it, it's been genuinely helpful. And so, I, I, yeah, I, I don't know. I think it's a, it's a weirdly invigorating text that was exhausting to get through, if that makes sense. No, I, I, I would agree with that. Okay, so yeah, so we're going to pick up through, through the biggest ideas. Um, I think you kind of had an idea of where to start for that bill, which is sort of maybe the historical progression. So I think I think that's right. I think in order to really understand his general argument and analysis, I think we want a thousand foot view of his sort of historical description of what happened. So as Joel already mentioned, um, he wants to move us away from what he calls the subtraction story, which is a narrative of how we got to a, a secular age, which reads basically, well, we learned more and more about the world and got better at science, so we learned how to throw away all these fairy tales and discard all of these sort of structures of, of oppression and of ways of making through the world we don't need anymore, uh, making sense of the world, rather, that we don't need anymore. So that gets us today to closer to how humans are supposed to work. Yay, science. And he says, it's not that that's false exactly, but it really misses a lot of the project uh, and a lot of what happened. So his historical... Uh, view goes sort of like this. He's very careful to say that it wasn't teleological, that it's not like this is how it had to be or a straight right. line. Yeah. That after any of these, there were a lot of different pathways things could have gone, which reminded me a lot of uh, Phil Chrisman's point in Midwest Futures about possible futures, which is another book we read. So anyway, uh, so he starts really talking about with the Protestant Reformation and the general project of reform, so both in the literal Protestant Reformation and in the various Catholic sort of counter-reformations that happened after that you see uh, what he calls an anthropocentric shift. So a shift of how sort of the focus of faith and actually a lot of social projects shifts into being uh, a project of developing individual human beings, right? And so this reform project makes us go from sort of locating... God, this is hard. Okay. This reform project <laughs> makes us sort of... <laughs> Uh, no, I know. <laughs> locate the reform not only in our institutions but individual people, right? He, yeah. One thing he talks about is his argument is that prior to the Reformation, Christian practice generally assumed that not everybody was going to be the same sort of high-level Christian, right? You had priests who were living and people and monks and such who were living one kind of very dedicated Christian life, and then you had sort of everybody else who wasn't right. really expected to have that level of calling or that level of dedication, frankly, to the faith. And it was more complicated than that. Uh, also, you can just append the words, well, it's more complicated than that to everything I'm going to say. <laughs> well, so I'm going to try to quit using that. What's funny <laughs> is he does, right? Because he continually yes. says... <laughs> He's like, this is a basic outline. This is a sketch. And I'm sitting there reading a 50-page sketch within a 777-page book, or 850 if you want to be particular. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like he, It's like, like he keeps introducing these robust, giant ideas and taking forever to get through them and says, of course, this is only a beginning. And it's like a beginning... Charles, no one else is going to write the sequel. Like, it's you or it's no one. Yeah, in my opinion. nobody. Yeah. yeah, keep going. Yeah, so... Anyway, so before before the Reformation, that's sort of how Christianity is understood. You have priests who are called to this higher level, and then everybody else is just kind of supposed to go to church and take communion like twice a year or something like that, right? I mean, go to church every week, but not, not go to confession only every so often, right? Right. The Protestant Reformation kind of changes this. It uh, f 
makes everything on the same level, right? It, it flattens it in that sense. So everybody is supposed to be a Christian 100% of the time, and everyone's supposed to have a sort of a similar relationship to faith is his argument, right? You start getting people going for lay preachers instead of a, a special priesthood. And this project then goes through a sort of neo-Stoic phase through what he calls the age of mobilization, which is where societies and religious organizations and both started, again, trying to basically recruit all the people into this same understanding of how Christianity should work. This happened alongside scientific developments, which uh, he said led to what he called a disenchanted world. Uh, he has a line in here, he says, science didn't kill religion, science killed magic, right? Yeah. Because as we get to knowing more and more about the world, we don't tend to believe in fairies and ghosts and spirits and demons, at least not in the same way. And so we're again focusing our development on our individual human selves and living in the right way and living morally. He says that results in a really easy transition into what what is called deism, right? Which I think some of us read about in high school as being what most of the founding <laughs> fathers were into, right? Yeah. As basically a concept of of a a religion or a or at least a theistic philosophy where there was a god who created a perfect, wonderful, natural order and then kind of wanked off, right? Like just kind of wandered yeah. off into the wild uh, <laughs> to leave us to do our best. And maybe there's an afterlife, but really our focus here is on living within this established universe. And he, so he says that's that's a very different structure than just saying, well, because of science, we now don't believe in a personal God, right? It's a shift from religion being sort of out there in the world and you have to worry about the demons who are going to come possess you and whatnot into an, anth again, an anthropocentric shift into ourselves. So from that, we get to deism. And from there, it's a relatively short step to what he calls exclusive humanism, which is the general model, I think he says, most of the West is going for right now. And I'm going to put a couple of pins in that that we'll deal with later. This, the other thing he's very careful to talk about, and then I'll be done with this, is he, he describes it as a nova of concepts of unbelief and then a supernova, where in the mostly the 18th century, after we've had this shift to deism, you get a lot of people in cultural elites, so people who are you know, well-read and intellectual and so on and in positions of power, start moving to this deistic form and then from there to various forms of atheism. But it doesn't really trickle down to the common man very much. And he actually says it doesn't really get there until the supernova, which he mostly locates in the 20th century, sort of after the First World War, and then particularly after about 1960. This is, I think, one of the moves he makes, which gives him a lot of credit for me, at least, because every time I would read this, I'd be like, I don't know how many people really were f reading these books or believing these things in 1750, Charles. But he's actually very careful. He's not saying that. He's saying that this move happened in sort of elite intellectual circles until really pretty recently, right? Right. So that's, that's kind of his general structure. Reform to neo-Stoicism to deism, to exclusive humanism, mostly happening only amongst, you know, intellectual people until about 1920. That's the book. Yeah, that's <laughs> it. Okay, well, we did it. <laughs> Guys, we did it. <laughs> um, well, no, so I was going to say, there's a few things that I, I, I want to try and um, point out from that, because he, he won me over a few times where I, I kept thinking I, I knew where he was going to go. So, like, there is definitely um, a Catholic idea that reform ruined everything, right? And th this makes sense from a Catholic perspective. If you're a Roman Catholic, you know, reform is the great rejection of the, you know, the one church. And ha however rigid or not rigid you are, it's certainly a schism of, you know, undeniable kind of violent consequences, right? Where he, um, he talks about the confessional strife that arises and like the ways in which we had to mediate 
you know, um, arguments and political arguments became different and yeah, so forth, so on. So it is, it's hard to argue with some of like the basic idea of the reform instantiating the modern world. I think basically no one disagrees with that, but there is a Catholic kind of argument out there, which is sometimes tongue in cheek and sometimes not that genuinely locates not just the modern world, but all of the evils of the modern world with reform, right? That like once reform came, it sort of instantiated all of these problems that we now have, you know, thanks Martin Luther. And I, I'm not even saying that that's right or wrong, I'm, but I'm saying like as someone who is not a Roman Catholic, but who is a Christian, I, I sometimes find that at the very least like annoying in its sort of simplicity, you know what I mean? Where it's like, hey, we're going <laughs> to pin everything. Yeah, like all these guys who messed up for mostly political reasons, we're going to say that their faith was the whole problem and that they destroyed, you know, this beautiful peasant-oriented society. And, and, I, and, and for me, I, I think that he often makes uh, these kind of descriptive arguments that I kept putting maybe a, a value on before he actually gave one. So the biggest thing you talked about, you know, he says the, the reform's biggest punch was that, hey, everyone should be now more monkish, basically, right? The discipline, the sort of seriousness of the faith, this hierarchical um, complementarity, that's what he calls it, right? That these ways in which different roles in society, they are different levels of power, but they're meant to complement, yada, yada, yada. That's all supposed to go away. We're all supposed to be way more Christian and instantiates this kind of obsession with um, bettering oneself and so forth, so on. But it, it also is a recovery of ordinary human flourishing, right? And that's one of like the essential components of exclusive humanism is that the earthy, good things we love, they really are good. They're not just chaff to be burned away. Um, love of your parents, love of your family, love of you know nature, these kind of things that become more and more the domain of exclusive humanism. You know, you can think of it in a romantic sense, right? Words worth going and praising nature or whatever. Um, he, 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 he actually takes like steps out of his kind of descriptive giving role and says pointedly, I think this is good. I think what we recovered was really beneficial to a sense of being alive. And I, I found that like, he often did that. He often surprised me where he would kind of come out and say, look, this is where we are and here are the ways in which it's really good. And also we can't go back. There's no going back. You, the moral landscape we now live in is not going to change backward. It'll only change forward. And I found that maybe really surprising because it's a book that is in some ways obsessed with like relitigating the past. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, here's what actually yeah. happened. And yet it's a book that is, I think, forward thinking and also maybe even like um, generous in a weird way. He continually comes back to like the ways in which we can include these these like weird new beliefs, the ways in which the supernova happen, you know, the supernova of belief happen where like people want to talk about it as if you believe or don't believe. And I think he is kind of making this robust argument for a middle ground that all these like weird middle beliefs, these agnosticisms, these people who go to church or sorry, don't go to church, but still believe in God and don't believe in God or Buddhist or Baha'i, like, you know, these kind of these mixtures of faiths. Like I, I think even though he's a Catholic and wants to defend Christianity in some ways, he also wants to defend the legitimacy of like not being a fundamentalist atheist or a fundamentalist Christian. And I, I found that also pretty winsome, to be honest. Um, I'm not sure. I, I'm guessing you did too. But yeah, I, 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 it continually surprised me. Well, I would say that uh, one of the general, fe I think he used the word generous. And I think that is one of the general features of the book. He, 
mean, he has clearly has some pretty strong opinions about stuff, but he's he's mostly not trying to write an angry polemic, right? Yeah. Uh, a couple times towards the end of the book, he takes he stakes out some more positions, but he, he tends to pretty much always operate under the assumption that we can learn something from most other kinds of of these things. At one point, he kind of divides modern thought into belief, uh, exclusive humanism, and then sort of Nietzschean anti-humanism. And he actually isn't really trying to pick that many fights between the three. No. I mean, he says there are huge differences in them, but he says there's stuff we can learn from all three of these. Uh, he's very, I think, I mean, humble is kind of the wrong word, but he will, like we were talking I, about. He yeah. will talk for 40 pages and say, so anyway, that's the very beginnings of this. And occasionally when he has an idea <laughs> he either doesn't have time for or whatever, he'll just say, I don't really know how this happened, but it did. And so let's talk <laughs> about it, which is disorienting. <laughs> 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 he, will, he will literally say, I can't really explain why this happened. Uh, here's some quick thoughts. But anyway, I think most people in the Academy generally agree that something like this occurred. So we're going to take that as a given and move on. And I, I think it's fascinating. It's a really wild decision in you know, an 850 page book about everything to do. But it does make me trust him also when he does go out and yeah. make kind of a stronger historical argument. Because, of course, I don't have the resources to evaluate a lot of uh, these arguments. Totally. You know, I, I, I've read some of this stuff, but not anything like all of it, and certainly haven't thought about it, and I'm also not a brilliant you know, philosopher. <laughs> but the fact that he will say when he doesn't know the answer to something or thinks it's too complicated, he'll just say that, really made me trust him a lot more for when he would say, this is what happened. They didn't talk about it this way. They talked about it this way. I said, well, he, in addition to the fact that he cited a bunch of sources, he usually doesn't say that unless he's pretty sure he's right. Well, and, and I think sometimes it, it works kind of like substantively in the argument where he says like, no one really knows why, right? Like this thing happened and we know these things happened around the same time, but none of like, it's actually, you know, what it reminded me of sometimes his historical argument. It reminded me of that um, satirical end um, of war and peace, you know, the second, second ending, <laughs> you know, like the second, uh, epilogue where he, uh, Tolstoy's, oh, yeah. Tolstoy's going on, like, basically it's just an essay about like how historical narratives are nonsense. And he talks about like, here's what everyone wants, wants to say happened in France. A bunch of people thought people, you know, their brothers should be free and then they beheaded folks. And like the one is not sufficient to explain the other. And I think sometimes that's actually what um, Charles Taylor is doing is saying, look, everyone has, ma well, at one point he says this explicitly, everyone has master narratives. That's become an outdated idea. No one likes to say that anymore, but he says everyone has a master narrative. And the problem is that every master narrative has weaknesses. It can't account for certain things. And he's really honest about, yeah, here's how my master narrative can't account for this. And actually he's like, but I think he's also making an argument for his, his way of thinking because he says, I'm not sure any narrative can, right? So the modern social imaginary or whatever it is, where it's like it's like the focus of his argument about our current conditions of belief, he basically at one point says, I don't really know how it came to happen. But yeah, so I do, I do, I don't know. I, I guess what I should say, I, we didn't talk about this part of so much about evaluating. Like he just said, it's hard to evaluate what he says, but we're kind of talking about how convincing we find him and this big historical narrative that you just outlined. I'm curious, like how, how convincing did you find it by the end of the book? I mean, I, I thought it made a lot of sense. I, of course, also this is the sort of thing it's catnip for me. I mean, saying this historical change is a change and not just a reduction or an addition. That's the sort of thing I like. I mean, that's, yeah. you know, so I'm, I'm already predisposed to like this. And also I am, you know, a person I'm, i am a christian who <laughs> still likes some of the moves of the last few hundred years so i'm also already kind of inclined to be you know cheering him on from the sidelines with this kind of project but no i i think i found really all or at least most of his 
uh, historical analysis very persuasive. Again, maybe that's just because I don't know enough to argue with it, but I thought it was persuasive. I have a few questions about some of his picture of how the modern world works, but even then, uh, it's not usually I think he's wrong or at least un- or unconvincing. It's that I think that I kind of wanted to know more about how he would apply the models he's built towards different problems than he chose to apply them to, which is right. not really a meaningful criticism. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> like, I think we have to talk about how he, so he is talking about North Atlantic, uh, Western, Western Christendom, uh, but he's really talking about England and France. That's really what he's talking about is England and France. I mean, and like yeah. Occasionally Canada and the United States. <laughs> uh, and he, he reads French clearly very well. I think in his, I read his biography, like on Wikipedia, one of his parents, he's, he's from Quebec. One of his parents is, francophone and one of his parents is anglophone and so he's clearly very fluent in french uh and also assumes everyone else reading the book is too because although he'll usually translate the french sometimes he's like you know here's two sentences in french yeah, what, we all know what, what that means, this right? one you'll like, figure we'll, out we'll you'll just charles. get it by context i don't thanks charles and nothing nothing in the notes is uh translated whether it's in french I, no. or german or latin or what <laughs> nothing in the notes is translated hey you wanted to know more about this well here it is you know paragraph of french and, and so he, he re- that really is his focus and of course and also he's very catholic yeah and a lot of his focus thus is on Catholicism or Catholic ideas, like when he talks about converts later on, he focuses primarily on Catholic poets who actually were also, I think, all priests or at least mostly priests. Yeah. Um, at one point, uh, and I, to be clear, I think that's a perfectly fine thing to do. But as somebody who is a American and grew up in a primarily evangelical uh, environment, sometimes I want to know more about what he would think this would apl- mean when applied to that situation. Does that make sense? I no, but I totally. I, I don't agree. know. If I think he's wrong. I just like I. What would it look like here? But again, that's also just because I'm an American. I think everyone has to, everything has to be about me. So that's, that's not really <laughs> well, and it's book. you know what's frustrating too is like you're right to say that like he in some ways it's it's more of a question of you know Charles could you say more about this because a lot of the book really is description right he is building certain yeah. arguments but he is mostly trying to accurately describe how we got here and what here looks like. Um, I mean, like on his Wikipedia page and a few other places, he, he talks about like in some ways he sees his main project as being philosophical anthropology. Um, the idea of like describing how humans live, how cultures work with like through a philosophical lens, which I think is fascinating. But um, I will say because so, yeah, because at one point he does talk about the American exception. Right. He talks about how yeah. the decline in faith personally and also somewhat publicly that's happened across Europe, England, and, you know, Canada has not happened in the same way in America. And he does, I think he does, like, I'm with you, like, I think he doesn't capture necessarily the conditions of belief of what it looked like to grow up, let's say, homeschooled in Colorado or Oklahoma, which my family did, basically. Um, And yet, he does two moves, one of the, I'm going to, you know, you you actually said at one point, but he does two moves which are convincing, which is he talks about, like, America's kind of religiosity is tied to its civic identity and what convinced me at this point was at one point when he said like often immigrants will reclaim their kind of country's religion they'll make it a bigger part of who they are when they come to america and in a weird way it helps them enter america more easily and i i I didn't necessarily have a lot of examples for that but that i think that's accurate that strikes me as true for a lot of different reasons and then the second thing is like he continually says it's not that like we don't have, you know, homeschoolers in Colorado. He doesn't, he doesn't say it that specifically. Like, it's not that we don't have these pockets of belief that are sort of insular in their belief and the idea of naive belief is sort of still true for them. Like right like in my circles when I was 5, 
basically everyone was a Christian, right? Like I didn't know that like it was an option not to do that. But as soon as you are kind of a public member of the society, you know that you are a pod within this greater menu of options. And like that is what he's trying to describe as far as the difference between 1500 and 2000. But it's, but, but it's, but it's hard. Cause like it's, an, I, I, I agree with him. He doesn't actually have enough time <laughs> to talk about everything. And yeah. this, this book is like never ending. <laughs> <laughs> so um, that was sometimes how I felt about some of the history where he would like I said he would just assume you remember not only what the Edict of Nantes was but what the sort of general consensus about it was afterwards you know he'd be like as right. you recall the Pope didn't like it very much I'm like yeah sure I knew that uh, but the only it's the only way to write this book because if every time he did something like that or referenced a thinker that he wanted to reference for you know a minute if every time he did that he gave us three or four paragraphs about what it was the book would be 1500 pages long oh even. yeah no and so yeah. this is this is the only way to do it it's just occasionally really disorienting to read through and like there's this guy emil durkheim that he thinks is really important <laughs> and he's just like yeah so there's these post-durkheimian neo-durkheimian and paleo-durkheimian societies you know what that means right I anyway i'm going to use that term for the next 60 pages i'm like who is i'm sorry i, I like to think okay. i'm a relatively well-read guy who the hell is this <laughs> I, I i had no idea either and the funniest part about you bringing that up is i actually in general he he won me over to most of his uh, jargons, right? His idiot, his idiomatic, you know, jargony way of speaking. Like, you know, like he has these, like, like I even said earlier, I, I said hierarchical complementarity. Like I have certain phrases of his in my head now that are pretty much too much. They're, they're, sorry, they're too jargon for how I usually want to speak. And yet he's like, okay, this is useful. But that one, that effing, Durkheimian, whatever. Like, I, I can't even say the name because I, I didn't practice at all. But it drove me crazy because every time it came up, I didn't think about what it meant. I just thought about how much I didn't like that he was using this specific of a reference for a big idea. Because it's, it's a pretty important idea, right? Like, he he yeah. uses those phrases, you know, the kind of pre- and then neo and post, whatever. Like, he uses them to really mark out our change in belief. And it's like, why would you tie it to this dude's name? Anyway, that's a rant about <laughs> nothing, but it did drive me crazy. Okay. So do you want to try to move to some other big ideas? I mean, th th they're all connected is the problem, of course. So it's hard to talk about anything. Yeah. talking about everything, but I do feel like, so part of the narrative of this historical movement, it sort of centers around like disenchantment and what he calls the buffered self, right? That like, modern conditions of belief take for granted a buffered self, which didn't used to necessarily be the default way in which people thought about themselves. Is that, and do you want to talk about that at all? Or is that, yeah, I, I think, I think it's a, an interesting idea. Um, and this is done. So these are connected ideas, this idea of disenchantment and the buffered, or he calls it the bounded self briefly. Buffered is the word he uses most of the time. And he has a couple of examples of what he means. One of his first is talking about, like, the difference between thinking of our emotions as being subject to humors versus subject to, like, hormones, right? Right. Uh, or, or other sort of scientific understandings between the two. And he says that if you were in, you know, 1500 and whatever, you thought that black bile didn't just cause melancholy, it was melancholy, right? Yeah. Such that there was this substance in your body that was melancholy, and if it was somehow removed or adjusted you wouldn't be melancholic anymore not just you wouldn't just feel it but you wouldn't be it anymore right whereas now we're like yeah there's different you know chemicals in our brain that causes us to think about things in different ways but we we always that's kind of the structure we tend to think about is there is a a thing 
that causes us to do something. There's a separation between the us and the item, right? Right. Or similarly, things like demonic possession, right? Like people were really were worried that you could be possessed by demons, right? That's how they would parse things like mental illness is not as uh, a malfunction with your body, but rather as some other thing entering into yourself and causing you to do bad things, right? So mm-hmm. yourself is not buffered. There isn't a bound between yourself and the rest of the world. And we could go on. And he says that this this change is one of the big things that allows for the Re- Reformation to work the way it does and that whole process we were talking about earlier. Uh, I thought this was a really interesting point. He put, puts a lot of emphasis on Descartes. You know, Descartes wants to sit down and lock himself in a tower and reason his way to God. And that's the sort of thing you can only do if you have this idea of a kind of a buffered self, right? Right. Uh, of a self that is entirely independent from everything else. And I, I think it's it's one of his more useful concepts. And I think that's, yeah, it's a good concept. I don't know if I really have any more analysis than that right now. It's good. I liked it. <laughs> no, well, and I, I think it, it's important because, again, he, he, he keeps, so what, what what I kept coming back to with this book, especially when it, because I, I will say, I, the, for the first two, 300 pages, Part of it that I, is that I was probably a little daft in really getting what he was trying to get at. But there is a way in which this book, at times, is him working out in front of you what he thinks a little bit, right? Um, yeah. Which I think is inviting and it invites you in to the, to the idea process. But it's also frustrating because I think sometimes he introduces a concept, but he has to literally take like 100 pages to sharpen it to the point that I then can nod along in the summary a hundred pages later and say, okay, yes, I get that. Not just because you've proved it, but also because you can now put it in really um, pithy language. But part of that, sorry, is that I also like, I had some resistances to the project as I saw it. Like I maybe had some of my own materialist assumptions about how things came to be or didn't come to be. He has a whole chapter or a whole section or whatever it is that kind of introduces the idea of like, hey, is my argument just trucking in idealism? You know, kind of the fallacy that like ideas hang out above our heads independently of people and then just knock about and trickle down magically into the universe. You know what I mean? Like, is that all I'm doing? And he says, no. Not totally. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think he's doing it a little bit. I'm not sure it's wrong, actually. He kind of convinced me that, like, is that a fallacy the way I thought it was? Anyway, but, like, he, so in, in this disenchantment process, I think it was, you know, the buffered self is so central because he continually, even when I think he's not doing it, I think is driving at the experience of the actual person, right? Like, even though he's putting it in jargon, he's putting it in language. He does try to talk. He talks about one point, like I'm trying to capture the level of understanding prior to philosophical puzzlement. And like, that's not quite as well as I want to say it, but like he is trying to capture experience. And, um, I think when it comes to this disenchantment buffered self thing, he, he, he convinces me at times of like what it means to go through the process of what he calls excarnation, where we more and more, you know, place our knowledge and our self outside the body in a weird way. Like it's definitely a post-Cartesian reality. But I think some of this stuff that feels like it is just like, hey, these ideas banged together and they made this modernity baby. Um, 
I think when that's convincing, it's because he's describing it at the level of experience. Like, here's what it felt like to be born into a peasant family. You know, like, for example, yeah, you immediately, like, as soon as you were aware of language, you were aware of the possibility of demons, of spirits, things that weren't you, continually interacted with you so that yourself was porous. It was continually letting things in and out. And you were a role, first and foremost. You were a father, a son, whatever. All of those things were sort of the natural naive limits of what you thought life could be and we have gone from that to this place where not only is you know cancer not me but also like maybe depression's not me right maybe like everything external to my flourishing is not me and should be guarded against that latter thing feels accurate to who i am I don't know if the other thing is accurate to a peasant from 500 years ago, but he makes a convincing argument that it was. I do think, so one of the things, I don't know, like, I don't know if you want to dive into it too much. I, I really was fascinated with, he tries to walk you through the ways in which we got from here, you know, the, 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 you know, the, the reform to neo-stoicism and so forth, so on. He tries to walk you through like some of the big changes in how we think of things then versus now. And I don't know that I followed all of it. I definitely can't summarize any of it. But I, I want to take a quick moment to say, like, his discussion around our conception of time and higher time versus horizontal time, I thought was fascinating. And I, I didn't know if that fascinated you at all, but I think we should talk about it. <laughs> no, I, I, did, I did enjoy it. I don't know if – I think he maybe spends too much time on it. <laughs> time. In a few places, like he's got this idea about carnival that I don't think is wrong, but I don't know if I think it's as interesting as he does. I agree. We have like a thirty, we have like a thirty-page breakdown fairly early in the book where he talks about carnival, which was a time when you could, you know, the, the rules of society sort of changed, and you could have, you know, things were more, could be more violent or more sexually free, or you could, you know, people who were in charge could be sort of mocked, like you could make fun of the king to his face on carnival in a way you couldn't right. another time, right? And he talks about that as a, there was a time when the rules are different and we don't really have those now, right? Like we don't, we don't have a week when it's okay to throw eggs at the president. Um, maybe it'd be better if we did. And I think actually <laughs> he thinks it probably would be. Yeah, he uh, does. I but think, you know, yeah. there's no, it's not like on October 2nd, you can do things you can't on October 3rd, right? Our holidays are just days you don't have to go to work. That's the only difference. Right. right? I don't think he actually says that, but that's my sort of extrapolation from it. Uh, and I think it's interesting. I don't know if I think it's as interesting as he says it is, but his general idea of time where... Now we tend to perceive, we perceive time as a homogenous, undifferentiated time, right? There's, there's no difference between two o'clock yesterday and two o'clock today, and not really any significant difference between two o'clock today and three o'clock today. Uh, whereas, and, and there's no like pre previously higher off time from the past, right? 2000 years ago right. was a different time in history, but it was still just time. Whereas his, his point is that, is that the previous understandings of time would, would put, certain historical events in sort of a time of legends or heroes, you know what I mean? Like a, an entirely different kind of time, which you could connect to on certain festivals or holidays, right? Such that certain Sundays, you know, maybe Christmas of 1320 actually was closer to Christmas and, and zero, you know, the day that Christ was born as opposed right. to the 26th of 1320, right? Um, in a sort of a conceptual sense. And I do think that that is an interesting point. Uh, I particularly like his idea about how different societies would sometimes perceive their laws as having come down, you know, for our people since time immemorial, right? As, as though there was a there was right. a time 2,000 years ago when we could found England, and then we could make up rules, and then those are just our rules forever because of this higher time it came from. I'm actually reading Mary Beard's History of Rome, SPQR, right now. 
Well, I haven't been reading it because I've been reading Charles Taylor's A Secular Age, but I started reading it a while ago. Uh, and there's an interesting sense in which one of her big projects is not only look at Rome's actual, like history, what we know of it now, but also look at how Romans thought about their history because right. Rome is really old. <laughs> and so you could have people in 400 BCE talking about what Rome looked like 400 years ago and not knowing because they didn't have the history, they didn't really have it written down, right? Yeah. And there's a similar sense there of they will they will grab some of the kings of Rome, because there was a time when there were kings in Rome, although we don't know much about them, uh, they would say, well, this king is where we get these reforms from, even though that can't possibly be true if you actually look at the history from a modern perspective. And, and so that's one of the things I thought of is this idea of a high off, high and far off time, which is also where Kipling sets all his stories. I'm really off track here. I'm no, sorry, no, this I is... it was a good... Well, I, it's a great comparison, and, I, and I, I actually think that's where he kept convincing me because it was one of the concepts that was harder to get my head around, to be honest. Like, so I, I mean, I'm someone who, because of my faith background, like I've heard of Kairos, I've heard of Kronos, right? Like I've heard of that differentiation, like the idea of transcendent moments that sort of intersect eternity, which is confusing because if like eternity is all moments kind of gathered together, wouldn't every moment be transcended by eternity? And it's, and I start to like lose the track pretty quickly, which actually to me kind of, it's not proved and made plausible what he was trying to say about the, the natural aspect of what it means to kind of see time the way we see time, right? So oh, sorry, the, the ways in which like these constructed and changed and morphed visions of the world or our conditions of belief and so forth, like if time is a component of that, and for him, it, it's a really big one that like how I see time, which I've always thought of as like, pretty you know i it's not an idea i investigate right and that if it's so radically different from 500 years ago that i can barely get my head around these examples he's pulling out and and i'm someone again who believes in basically eternity i found that really compelling and i, and I found it compelling because he does talk about like the ways in which you know if you lose a higher time you start to empty out higher meanings you empty out the hierarchical complementarity you you lose the idea of like the king being a person and also like the kingdom of France itself or whatever, right? Like the, the idea of time yeah. makes this horizon of belief. It, it goes past the horizon, right? So once you lose the hierarchical time, you kind of, your horizon narrows or shifts or whatever, such that previous ideas become almost literally unthinkable, which is often what it feels like to look at the past and go, how, right? Like how did everyone like be like, you know, usually it's limited to like, well, here's how power worked and here's how the economy worked and here's how oppression worked. And I think those are valid readings, but truthfully, his project of philosophical anthropology, like how did we literally find these things unthinkable until we kind of dig out whatever the archeology span it's, it's convincing to me because it's so alien. The, the only other thing I want to say about time is one of the only moments in the book when I felt like I was not ahead of, but I was like, yeah, I know what he's going to say next was he was talking about time, and I said, you know, I think, from my limited understanding, that there's a whole interesting feature about Australian Aboriginal mythology where they locate yes. all their things as happening dream in the dream time, which yeah. is a different time entirely, and you can't get there by going. And then, like, two pages later, he talked about it. I was like, ha-ha, I am smart. And then two pages later, we were back to Edict of Nantes, and I was like, I am a baby. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Well, that's, I do, I mean, I, I you know, that, that's actually one of the aspects that I think is maybe, like, underrated about this book. Not that I've read, like, any reviews of it or anything. I've read a few, but... Um, I, you know, no one, because it's so technical at times, and I've already said this once, but like, it really is a talky book. Like he, and he, and he gets away with some of these jumps 
because it's it's a it's at times him talking to you and he says like we've talked about it, he'll, he'll go off on an idea and he says that's true or or whatever maybe it's not true and he literally says or whatever and it sort of invites all this, the time yeah and, and it invites this kind of casual jumping around that is obviously the result of like a huge amount of education and erudition but it's also him making it kind of accessible where it's like oh yeah i, I i've heard of dream time and Okay, now I'm lost, but like I, I, we'll go back to solid ground eventually. Like you know, we'll find solid ground again because he's gonna try and find solid ground for me. Yeah. So any, I don't know. Like I, I feel like we, we could spend forever on the historical stuff, and I feel like we haven't even touched the surface of it. But are there any other like big aspects of that story that we should touch on before we move somewhere else? I don't. I think we should probably move forward to talking about his understanding of our actual age now, because I. I mean, there's, like I said, there's more, but I think those are really the big ones as we understand that move from reform to deism to uh, to exclusive humanism. And then also that one of the major things being this concept of what disenchantment looked like, which is connected to this discussion of time. Well, I, I think I, those are probably the most important takeaways. Yeah. And I, I was going to say, I, I will say, I feel like you, you read, like, I feel like disenchantment and enchantment, they've, at least in certain circles, they've become re- like... You hear it all the time, right? We live in a disenchanted age, or, or and I, I, I couldn't figure out actually how much he is responsible for that versus how much he's like on just the front end of that. Do you know what I mean? Because I feel like I, I hear a lot about enchantment yeah. nowadays, and I, I know Max Weber, who he references a lot. Max Weber is kind of like the king of enchantment, and uh, you know, people on the left, especially if they're the Catholic left, love Max Weber, and he is using a lot of Max Weber in this book. But um, I think he does say in this book, he, he kind of, he's the one who's bringing up disenchantment um, to the foreground, not just the idea of enchantment itself, which I mean, is I a think small right. point. I think, but. I think the idea is not not entirely his originally, but his development of it, and I think particularly his development of the buffered self is, at least I got the impression that was mostly original work. Uh, yeah. So, um, and I guess, the, so before, as we head into maybe the, the, the modern section, I, I, I did want to touch on... Um, you know, you and I have kind of talked or maybe joked about like if we had to like be pompous enough to say such thing, like we we both are kind of like virtue ethics people. We both have a philosophy background. Yeah. If, you know, if we're asked about it, that's kind of what we're both drawn to. And I, I thought this book um, was profound for me because, well, one, it, it actually it connects, I think, some virtue ethic ideas up to the gospel in ways I hadn't seen done, at least. Um, but also, he, it, this is one of the few books I've read in a long time, and I don't read a lot of philosophy, but I, I, I do read some. But I, I feel like his authority is so based in like what I would call like the Aristotelian observation model that I, I, I don't know if I can think of a stronger sort of observational authority than Charles Taylor that I've read recently. And what I mean by that is... um. You know, Aristotle famously, you know, that, that old famous photo where like Aristotle's pointing a photo. Oh, my God. Painting where Aristotle's point. <laughs> I know. <laughs> look, look, guys, <laughs> this book messes with you. OK, um, you know, the painting where, you know, Aristotle points up and you know, Plato or sorry, Plato points up and Aristotle points down because one's like about forms and one's about, you know, the ground of life and one's about induction versus deduction. Anyway, the point being is like there is a quote, of course, in Nicomachean Ethics where Aristotle says, you know, deduction is arguing from the universal and induction is arguing to the universal. Of course, obviously, therefore, all deduction is based on induction because how could you get a universal without going to it first? Um, which I liked, and I don't think a lot of 
philosophers actually operate that way. They like to start with self-evident truths, you know? Um, and what I'm going on about this because sometimes I found myself resisting Charles Taylor. I found myself saying like, okay, you're, you're basically doing like a really intellectual version of looking around and giving a cultural hot take, right? You're like looking around, you've read a lot of stuff and you're trying to like say, Hey, here's how, here's how it feels to like be a human, which I think sometimes is really weak sauce ways of proceeding rhetorically. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know that it's convincing to just generalize. And I, I definitely know after like all of my nonsense, not nonsense, sorry. I definitely know after a lot of my literary theory classes, like you're not supposed to universalize, right? Um, human experience and whatever else. But again and again, he would describe something um, such as, this is a random example. We imagine that we have to start elsewhere, what he calls the view from nowhere, first showing, for example, that God exists then that he is benevolent. And he's talking about like this experience of how it feels to discuss belief is relevant to everything he's saying. In fact, is like the whole of what he's saying. I honestly, I, I continually resonated with his observations such that like his argument is basically just like, Hey, here's a description. That seems true. Doesn't it? And I was like, yeah, it does. And I, I don't know, I thought that was I thought that was compelling because it's that's a that's a really hard thing to do, I think, to describe something so carefully and yet broadly that like the reader continually nods along as if you are proving something. Does that make sense? I know I said that a lot, but does that make sense? <laughs> no, it does. And I, I would agree that I uh I think this book is pretty founded in more of a sort of a virtue ethics approach to things, which I also find more persuasive. You and I need to find some major philosophical differences so we can have <laughs> yeah, what we're about. I think we have some. We should just find some. But anyway, uh, like th towards the end of the book, he's talking about uh, he, he objects to totalitizing codes. He thinks that particularly the exclusive humanist approach to things, which I guess we haven't defined, but is the you know the only goods are human flourishing, right? Right. Imminent goods. Uh, we should want them for everybody, so it tends to be very connected to concepts of benevolence and sort of equality or democracy, although he, he talks about ways it can go off the rails. But, you know, we want everybody to be more or less equally free and happy and have their goods here, but that's what there is, right? What there is right. is living a good life and dying at 90 in your bed. Um, or at least that's all that we're all going to collectively assume there is. You know, right. you can have your own beliefs in your corner, but that's not really what we're about as a society, right? So he talks about how that, that often can reduce itself down to a series of codes and rights being kind of the primary way to think through the world, right? Yeah. And he can, he can, he contrasts that with a uh, particular read of the Christian of the gospel, particularly like the, uh, you know, the really famous parable. The, the, good, the oh good Samaritan. God. The good Samaritan. <laughs> good Lord. The, <laughs> he, he goes a deep dive on uh, the good Samaritan parable with a thinker, Ivan Illich, who I've heard of but don't know anything about. And it is connected to this much more virtue ethics approach to things. Like, it's really more about how we move through the world. Life is more complicated than that. There's no, he has a quote, there's no formulae for being a Christian. Right. Uh, and I found that really persuasive. And it also, I think, it squares with his general reluctance to give a 100% solid answer to any question. Yeah. Because it's just not how he, he thinks the world works ethically, metaphysically, or anything. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and I found that very persuasive. And it also, again, means anytime I disagreed with him, he would almost always oh, it's a give caveat. a sentence later that meant he'd at least he'd at least thought of what I was saying and thought yeah. I wasn't entirely wrong. So it's hard to really get arguing with him, at least I found, because even if I think he missed something, I'd be like, yeah, I think maybe he knows he missed something. And doesn't say he's giving the whole picture. So, And sometimes what he would do, and I think this is just how careful he is, sometimes when he would border on 
too broad of a position, like a commentary on left or right politics, he would then tie it to a specific historical instance. He's like, so this is what I mean by that. And which is actually helpful because I think sometimes, you know, like there's parts of this book that someone, if they wanted to, could kind of rip out and say, here's a perfect description of Twitter, the cultural left. And it's like, yeah, he, I mean, in some ways, yes, like that is a good analysis, but then he also ties it explicitly to like, bolshevism going off the rails in the 20s you know what I mean like he's not yeah. he's not just being free like even when he's being free floating he then will peg it to something so that you have to address that more concrete claim to unravel the broader claim which i i found both again it was very convincing but sometimes it was like ah that was tricky charles that was pretty tricky but <laughs> but yeah i we we should say i since since we since we since we breached broached it um i do have to say his reading of the good samaritan and basically his uh, re-emphasis on, you know, a, that being a Christian is a way to be in the world as opposed to a, a legalistic sense of what you should and shouldn't do. I, I found it very profound, to be honest. It was not anything I disagreed with or hadn't heard in some ways, but he does take a certain like Heideggerian notion of being in the world in a kind of a broad, primordial sense. And he uses that along with Aristotle, I think, to really capture the condition of what being a Christian should look like. Um, He talks about, you know, like agape toward others is sort of how we should move through the world. And um, what's really fascinating to me is he, he doesn't even throw moral codes out completely. He says, here's how they should be used. He just sort of reestablishes the primacy of basically agape toward others and of course if you're you know since we're talking about christians like you know basically it's love the lord your god with all your heart soul and mind and love your neighbor as yourself and he he kind of i don't know he makes it a really pointed part of his ending i think not only to maybe kind of have like a bit of a christian message in there that he believes in and wants you to maybe consider but actually i think more robustly to say like look there is a different way for us to go about things we've inherited all these like deviant bad parts in some ways of like the christian self model here's a good part that we could recover for the betterment of everyone (laughs) you know what i mean i I thought that was kind of profound too because if we are the children of latin christendom and if it is hard to unravel that like maybe we should be recovering the best parts of it a little more intentionally and we can go into that maybe a little more later because i I, but i found it personally but also you know kind of intellectually i found it you know very profound so one of the things I liked best about uh, the Good Samaritan section, which I guess a lot of it is really him summarizing, again, this other guy's work, but uh, yeah. <laughs> was the, the, the way he really emphasized the contingency of it. So the, you know, the way yes. the story it comes up is Jesus says, love your Lord, you know, the great command is to love uh, Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And then somebody says, say, who's my neighbor? And so that's when he tells the Good Samaritan story. And Charles Taylor really says the contingency of it is really important. This yes. is story, like the Samaritan just trips over this guy, right? Yeah. Like that's an important part of the story. It's an understanding that your neighbor isn't just all people. Like the sort of exclusive humanist read on this, he says, is that you read the story and you say, oh, my neighbor is other people who are different from me as well, right? It's right. not just people who look like me and act like me because Samaritans and Jews didn't get along, right? My, my neighbor is everybody and i have this duty to everybody and that's the code i should live by and charles taylor says it's not that that's wrong it's just that also your neighbor is somebody you happen to trip over right like your your neighbor is this guy it's not just all people it's also specifically this person right here that you stumbled on on the side of the road who was bleeding to death 
And I think that's good because I, I, I do find that, and I, I, this is a thought I've been playing with for a while, we, we do tend to talk about stuff in terms of codes and rights and what is the right way to handle situations as though they fit into slots all the time. Like you hear every Thanksgiving people, there's a dozen think pieces. How should you talk to your conservative relative at home <laughs> yes. or whatever? Right? Yes. And I really kind of hate those, not because there aren't things you can learn and there aren't certain general practices, but of course that's entirely dependent on the specifics of your relationship with that uncle, right? Like, how do we do, like, or all the time, you know, how, how do we talk to people of different political persuasions? Like, well, I don't know. Who is this person to you? Under what circumstances are you talking to him? Those are, I think, determinative questions <laughs> of the answer. You know what I mean? Like, I'm going to talk to somebody I don't know very well at a bar differently than I'm going to talk to my very, very good friend who we've gone off on different directions. You know what I mean? Yes. And, and so I think this focus on contingency, again, this is getting away from the book a bit, but in terms of things that were personally inspiring or personally revelatory out of the book that was one thing i really really liked because yeah I think that's right so because he does talk about right so he talks about it's a response right you're in and that's the contingency you're talking about right that you're in a situation and the response is based on how you are moving through the world right so the good samaritan you have three people who are moving through the world in a way that ignores the hurting neighbor you have one person who is moving through the world in such a way that he responds to the neighbor um, and, I, and I like it because in some ways, like he's using this complicated language to restore the simplicity of the situation, like which is what you just said. Like, so, right, Jesus gives kind of like, hey, everything's summed up in this love, the Lord, your God, with all your heart, soul, and mind, love your neighbor as yourself. The person says, well, who's my neighbor? And then Jesus gives like an example of what it looks like to move through the world with this sort of agape focused mentality, paradigm, whatever. And what, of course, happens after that, as, it, as instead of it being an example of how to be in the world, it becomes a thing to abstract from, like you said, to make to make you know to make a code. But he, he doesn't he doesn't leave it there though, of course, because he talks about like, okay, well, here's how you know moral codes are still useful. Like we we use them to inculcate kind of morality in the next generation, such that like we basically should be using moral codes as evidence for how to move through the world but not as ends and of themselves. And, and some of this is, again, not revelational or revelation, you know, sorry, a revelation in the sense that it has never been said before in a different way. But I, I did find him pegging it to the Good Samaritan story and kind of unraveling legalism in its most like brutal form, sort of inspiring. It, it reminded me even of like, like, like you just pointed out on kind of your side, now I'm following you into this digression, but it reminded me of, um, I think it's, He's come up twice now, but Phil Chrisman, who wrote um, Midwest Futures, um, I, you know, we both follow him on Twitter. But at one point, maybe a few years ago. Oh, no, not just that. He follows both of us on Twitter, too. This is important. <laughs> <laughs> I love that guy. Um, Sorry. But, no, <laughs> he, uh, but I think it was, I don't know, a few years ago, two weeks ago. I don't know anymore. Um, my time is beyond horizontal. <laughs> um, but there is one of these. You know, there's one of these flashpoints, and it definitely was before COVID and before the current protests and riots and so forth. But it was a police shooting or something, and you had this kind of classic Christian Twitter dialogue, which was like, if your pastor doesn't make this the focus of his message, then you need to find a different church. And what's interesting is that Phil, who's like very on the left um, and like in support of these sort of causes more than most people I know, he kind of said like, giving this sort of mandate to like, let's say a rural preacher who's trying to just draw in a crowd to talk about being less cruel, giving them a mandate of what they have to talk about is the quickest way to get them to lose any discussion points with their 
parishioners, right? Like you, you can't give these sort of crazy universal mandates such as like, like you're saying, oh, your racist uncle, I see you talked to him again and didn't shoot him this time. And it's hard because like on one hand, <laughs> on one hand, like, yeah, we should be drawing boundaries and we should be encouraging each other to be brave or to be, you know, committed to righteousness or whatever you know like that stuff's not bad but it is a commitment to a way of being and yeah not a checklist where it's like i see joel once again texted with his father and didn't once mention trump which is you know baloney um i think yeah i think it it's it, it really to me i was convicting i guess is what i'm getting at i found it convicting in a sense of like i look like the materialism thing I am explicitly, I feel like, anti-materialist in a lot of my assumptions about the world. And I am also, I think, anti-legalistic as not only a Christian but as a person. And yet, I think he found a way to say, I mean, are you? Are you really? Like, are there things that you are calcifying as a club to use against others? Because if you are, it might not be the best way to go to the world. Um, But again, without saying, like, he doesn't say moral codes are useless. He doesn't say, like, everyone who's saying something you know, on different sides of the aisle that both people are right. Like he's not falling into these usual traps of false equivalence or whatever, while still making a robust argument for maybe a different paradigm, which I just thought, I don't know, in this moment in particular, um, with how crazy things are, but also in my own head, I, it was very, yeah, it was very compelling and very, even I would say inspiring at times. All right. <laughs> we didn't even get to the, uh, to the, <laughs> to the moment we were trying to get to, which is like, okay, that's the history stuff. We barely t- touched it. Now it's time to look at what does it mean to try and believe anything or even to believe nothing in this current moment in America, Canada, England, France, whatever. Where do you think we should start with this? <laughs> well, I think there's sort of two major things. Again, he, he kind of divides the three he, th- he kind of divides people into three major positions on this, uh, right? And obviously he's always he's clear that it's more complicated than that. But you have the exclusive humanist position, which he says is kind of the dominant one, at least in sort of public space, right? In, in terms of how we all, it's when we all sort of move within, right? Right. Which again is the notion that we all have, we do have duties towards each other based on a sort of duty of benevolence. He spends some time explaining why it's complicated, but you know, this is kind of what, uh, and this is sort of his second secularity, con- or first secularity concept, but the sort of things you hear referenced in public spaces, right? Right. There's a second, which is a, a believing position, and he's primarily talking about a Christian one, but he's actually very clear in the modern one that, that he doesn't mean that's the only context, right? He's very yeah. clear that a, a Jewish position, a Buddhist position, and is a, a Muslim position is all sort of in this same network here, where there's a real sense of, of transcendence. Uh, is a big word for him, that, which is a concept of things going beyond the self, right? The exclusive right. humanist humanist thinks that there's no nothing beyond the self except other selves, right? There's other people, but that's it. Whereas the believer believes there is some sort of higher good or higher power. And he, he contrasts both those with a third position, which he really carefully links to Nietzsche, but also to Camus and Schopenhauer and some other people of what he calls the anti-humanist position. And the anti-humanist position uh, is people who look back to like actually a pre-Christian sort of pagan era and say, we've really lost a lot of our sort of older heroic warrior ethos, right? right? And there's obviously caricatures you could do of the sort of people who, you know, go to metal festivals and Viking cosplay and occasionally burn down churches, but he's not talking about that <laughs> necessarily so much as, uh, you know, people who do think that we need to have a, a more vibrant and artistic life, which isn't necessarily as concerned with treating everyone the same, right? right. And if some people aren't up to it, then so be it, right? And I, I think that 
these guys are mostly jerks. And I think, <laughs> I don't know if Charles Taylor would exactly disagree with me about that. But he does say that there is a, there is a sense of heroism and there's still some things we can learn from this position. And he really likes uh, Camus for his point on this. He says Nietzsche is the most important, but I think the ones he finds most personally interesting are actually more more the French guys, more Camus I agree. in particular. I totally agree. Well, and I, um, and I, so he kind of says those are the three main sort of, he doesn't ever say worldview because he's a smart person and no smart person should ever say worldview. But uh, <laughs> he, I, th- I think he has, those are the sort of the three main positions you can take right now. Uh, and he says all of them are subject to what he calls cross pressures, which is, uh, should really be understood as I think actual pressure or like wind blowing you around of the tensions between all of these things being the common ways of moving through the world, all moving on everybody all the time. Right. Uh, which doesn't mean that everybody necessarily is in a state of existential crisis. He's right. not saying that, but some people are, and that everyone is at least still feeling these pressures, even if they choose to react to them by, you know, walling them off and saying, I'm just not going to worry about this. And so these are, these are senses of the, uh, even people who aren't the Nietzscheans sometimes agree that we've lost something, even if it's just a way of talking to each other by moving to a secular age. He talks right. about this all the time, this dead of a disenchanted world. We've lost certain kinds of aesthetics. He says on more than one occasion that when people go uh, do tourist stuff in Europe, what they do is they go look at churches, uh, regardless of what their personal beliefs are, which is obviously a little bit pat, but I think there's real truth to that, right? <laughs> like what we no, do is totally. we go and we look at the churches or temples. You know, if we're in Southeast Asia, what are you going to go see? You're going to go see stuff like Angkor Wat, right? Which yeah, is yeah. partly a religious construction, right? Uh, and so we all feel these sort of cross pressures and are, are, are all on these, these dilemmas of modern belief between two or more sort of untenable positions that all of us are kind of moving through the world in. So the modern condition is you pick one, you, you have one of these three general worldviews, but you're always buffeted and uncertain. Uh, well, and, and <laughs> how's I, that? Well, it's, it's, well, first of all, Bill, it's really good because it's, it's a lot. <laughs> because there's so much here that he goes into. But I, I do think what I, what I, um, what I really liked about what you were just saying is he, he again, he's so careful he does believe that the polemic positions of unbelief, you know, kind of extreme atheism and the polemic belief of belief, which in America definitely would, you know, be characterized by fundamental Christianity. Um, he, he believes that like sets the tone for so much of what we are th- feeling, thinking, responding to or whatever. But I, I, I love that he introduces this kind of like, I think he even calls it the American triangle at some point, the idea yeah. of exclusive humanist, anti-humanist and believer and he articulates it, I think, not – and he's really careful. He says it's not that almost anyone fits neatly into one of these little, you know, conceptional boxes, right? It's And, like, people people do. You know, definitely there are just, like, pretty much, you know, like we talked about, like, the homeschooling Christian from Colorado or whatever. Like, But that these three positions sort of articulate, yeah – the tensions we feel when trying to believe. So at one point he says the basic mode of spiritual life today is thus the quest. It's a quest for what we want to believe, what kind of maximizes different tensions that we're caught between. And he, he has some specific tensions that he kind of lays out um, in like a couple of chapters called dilemmas, which are very long, but very good chapters. (laughs) But he, he, I think he lays out these three positions as sort of the epicenter of the tensions, right? Like he calls them cross pressures. So like when trying to, so basically, for example, like you, you talked about, you know, some people think we've lost something, even if they're not uh, Nietzschean and humanist. But so, for example, for Christians, you know, there is pressure to not denigrate or lose track of ordinary human flourishing, 
right? So I even know like in one mega church that I went to like once or twice when I was in my you know, early 20s, um, one of their big things, one of their big like pitches was that being Christian wasn't just good for the next life, it made this life better, right? And you hear that all the time. Like how can you pitch Christianity in this age and this civilization without addressing the ways in which it confines the things you're supposed to do or contracts them, I should say. But also like you, you have to make an argument for why it's going to be better for your ordinary human flourishing. And he feel, and that's basically a tension or a cross pressure that I think is located in our exclusive humanist, you know, environment. Um, and I, I, I don't know, and I, I, but I really loved the triangulation of it because again and again, I, I, for me at least, it was a, it was an issue of resonance. He kind of describes stuff that I found profound. I even found his, um, his unpacking of Camus as kind of a strain of anti-humanism and how Camus kind of captures a more worthwhile heroic model of like what it means to do something good, even though the, even the world's absurd. I mean, even that gloss, I think articulates a default position of, I don't know, to be honest, most TV and film. Like I had a really silly example in my head from the Marvel universe, but I also had one from Angel, you know, the vampire TV series (laughs) spinoff of Buffy. (laughs) Like, you know, so that's that's what I fill my life with. But but honestly, like there's this whole epiphany arc in Angel where um, he realizes the world doesn't matter, but that if the world doesn't matter, it means that like every little good thing he does is immense. And that's basically exactly what Taylor outlines using Camus. And so I feel like it's it's I feel like he just he puts his his thumb so precisely on these different pulses that it was hard not for me at least to keep going. Yeah, that, that is the limit of what I think is possible to believe or even worse. I do feel pressure not to lose sight of ordinary human flourishing while I'm trying to transform my life, you know, but I think he also, and he makes a, one of the places where he's more maybe polemical, he makes a real argument that like, it's hard to argue for transformation or aspiration without admitting, without admitting some level of transcendence. And I don't know if that's maybe naughty and like, like nodded enough um, and specific enough to an argument he's having with Martha Nussbaum, who I I like, and I think you like too. Um, But I I don't know. Did did you find that kind of like, I thought that was one of the points where he was a little more polemical, but it felt more, it felt essential that like, is, is aspiration without some level of transcendence possible? He kind of makes the argument that it's not. And I, I think I agree with him. Well, I, I will admit that I had gotten a little confused during portions of that. Also, I haven't read the Nussbaum stuff in question. Um, right. I've read Nussbaum, but not not that stuff, um, which I think was actually part, mostly a speech she gave. Yeah. So he, well, he, so yeah, it's, she has a big book on or a it. lecture. And but. then when he talks about like, she makes, it's a book she has where she says we should give up the idea of a transcendence. And then she sort of amends it in a lecture later that says, look, I'm not talking about I'm like, the, like inner transcendence might be a good thing, but not sort of this, you know, this kind of bigger idea of transcending your humanity. We shouldn't leave our humanity behind, even if you might transcend some of your own habits. And Charles Taylor, I think says, I'm going to call the bluff. I, I don't think you can, like, I don't think the one can necessarily lose the, like you, if you're going to transcend your own habits, you're going to lose some of what makes you, you as a human or whatever. But I did, that might be the, I will say, okay. That might also be the section where I did write down that I fell asleep in my notes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I don't know. I just, I, I, I did find uh, as a descriptive sense that people, I think particularly in the, 
uh, and again, I, he, he is very clear, as Joel said, it's not that there are people who are exclusive humanists and people who are anti-humanists and people who are believers exactly. I mean, there are, but that's not right. like you can divide the world into three categories easily. There are three strains of thought. But I, I, I do think you get this a lot in the sort of uh, soft spirituality stuff that he talks about, right? You sort of, you, you know, we're, tr- we're trying to get better habits, but we do, they do, they do want to avoid anything which is like denigrating to the human condition, even as, you know, and I, I do think yeah. that there's a tension there. And he, I, I do think he correctly identifies problems that come into that way of thinking. I don't know if I'm going to, I don't know if I came away feeling that it was, I, I, I guess part of it also just because I'm, I'm me and I don't really think about things this way. I don't know what exactly what it would mean to say, is it possible to do these things without reference to transcend? I don't know what that means exactly. Right. No, that's um, fair. But that's also just me. But I, uh, I do think he's pointed to, to reasonable tensions as people are searching for meaning essentially. Right. But want to avoid some of this totalitizing language and some of this, these thoughts from whether Christian or Buddhist or whatever traditions about, yeah, not just developing better habits, but transcending yourself in some sense, you know, leaving behind parts of yourself that are a problem. I, I do think I'm going to switch gears a little bit here, if that's all right. I think this yeah. is related. One of the ideas I thought I really liked was he, he talked about things like mental illness and as well as like civic illness, like people doing crimes and such as uh, in the exclusive humanist view and the way we talk about it now as being pathologized and uh, yeah. dealt with in terms of therapy and sort of medical metaphors, right? Such that in ways he says that that is both very good in some ways, but also does seem to leave some some weird empty space and also can be turned into some really bad things. Right. Right. Cause we, we've moved away, I think in general consciousness away from a concept of like original sin, which is both good and bad. Right. And so, so I, I think this is related to what we were talking about earlier. Right. Where he talks about how, when we talk about mental illnesses, it really is like solely a sort of pathologized thing. Right. It's like, well, right. there's, there's something wrong with you and it needs to get fixed. Right. And on the one hand, sort of, but on the other hand, it is part of who a person is, right? I mean, I can say, as a person who struggles with some, some of those sorts of things, right. you know, it's not just that, like, if I break my arm and I can get my arm back together, right? Like, it's like, well, part of who I am is that I'm a deeply depressive neurotic. You know what I mean? I'm not yeah. really sure who I am if I'm not those things. Right. <laughs> and totally. it sounds like a joke, but it's also true. Like, <laughs> no, I t- there's a yeah. sense in which that is not just an ailment, but it is also constitutive of myself as I understand myself, which doesn't mean that I shouldn't take steps to get better at it but it's it feels different to say that and how am i going to deal with it and transcend it does feel differently than just well what's the right pill i can take i mean i, and I do take antidepressants i don't mean that but like it's still not the same question right does no i sense? yes i totally agree no i i, I thought um I, I and you're you're putting some caveats in there that he also puts in there because i think you know kind of his again one of his stronger polemics against the way that we've like pathologized everything um, there's, there's some dangerous implications if you take that too far, right? That like, you know, we, we shouldn't medicalize some things that are medically based. It's like, yeah, no, we definitely should, you know, we should obviously, you know, pay attention to like how to help <laughs> asthmatics with, you know, albuterol or whatever, but he's, but he's not going there. Yeah. He, I think he has, he is talking about the ways in which pathologizing everything limits, the senses, the sense in which we think we can or can't change, right? Like it limits how we think we can change or how we are supposed to change, not even just like what we're supposed to change to. And I found, I mean, again, it was, it was technical enough that I feel like without drawing up a thousand quotes, I can't say much more than that, (laughs) but it was, yeah, it was one of his stronger points. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. So I think I want to for a second, just pull out for a little bit and get to this idea in our modern world that he calls the maximal demand, right? So that he hit hit one of his big projects in this book, (laughs) which one of like his 18 big projects 
<laughs> um, it's definitely, I think, to, to reshape how we are characterizing certain debates, realities, ideas, history, whatever, right? He, he, he really wants to recharacterize some of these things that we take for granted. And one of the more interesting ones is he, he really wants to redefine what it means to struggle between belief and unbelief. And, and, and in some ways, you can only see this argument being made by someone who does believe, um, because it sort of, I think, inherently contradicts a pretty common default atheist position about, like, reason opposing faith and so forth, right? Because he, he does kind of make the argument that, like, you know... You know, it's not the case that one side's making epistemological arguments and one side's not. Both are making maybe more, more um, similar arguments than they want to admit. So, like at one point he says, which we haven't gotten to at all. You know, both opened and closed stances. That is, both believing transcendent and non-believing imminent stances involve a step beyond available reasons into the realm of anticipatory confidence. I mean, anticipatory confidence, if that's not faith, you know, I'm not sure what else that would be, but it's this <laughs> idea, right? But it's the idea that like you will land better going this road than that road. And again, we haven't made, I'm not, we're not doing him due justice in some ways. Cause he also makes the, the summary at one point that he's argued um, that the convincing force of modern atheism lies more in its ethical stance than in epistemological considerations, which we can get into if we want, because that's really interesting. But basically, he has this idea that, okay, now that we're past all of these developments that we talked about, and that these situations of belief and unbelief are maybe more ethically and non-epistemologically defined than we want to think, we face this dilemma. And the it's kind of summarized by the maximal demand, which is how to transform without crushing our essential humanity. And he thinks that kind of our current moment in this part of the world, in this part of history, that that is essentially the, the, the demand or the question that both unbelievers and believers and everyone in between is trying to solve. And so he has this great quote where he says, we either have to scale down our moral aspirations so that we don't, you know, do away with ordinary human flourishing, or we have to sacrifice some of this ordinary human flourishing to secure our higher goals. If we think of this as a dilemma, then perhaps we have to impale ourselves on one horn or the other, which I love as an image, by the way. Um, and I, I think I wanted to, to kind of pull this out because even though this book, I believe, makes a pretty strong argument for transcendence and even maybe for Christianity, he never backs away from saying, here's how Christianity or belief, because he does broaden it, but it is usually Christianity, like here's how belief can maybe answer this maximal demand. Of course, it puts an emphasis on moral aspirations, but part of how it retains an ordinary flourishing is, quote, would have to be transformed of the desires themselves so that our human desires aren't lost. They're just sort of, you know improved or something and but i i found this really again a convincing way to look at things because it isn't a simple apologetics project it isn't a simple polemic um it's a really careful consideration of how 
unbelievers, believers, and everyone in between are trapped in the same landscape of decision-making. Uh, one last quote to just clarify his position, which I think is important. This debate between belief and unbelief is less one between clearly opposed, internally self-consistent positions, and more a struggle between two rival attempts to construe and come to terms with certain common dilemmas between aspirations to transcendence and the cherishing of ordinary human desires. And I think this is the heart of the book and where he really got me finally, even though it's like I was already on board with him, he got me over any kind of further problems I had because I understood his project to really genuinely be about giving an accurate, broad, but specific view of the landscape in which we're doing this quest. And it also, it reminded me actually, Wes kind of quotes, sorry, so many quotes, reminded me of this old C.S. Lewis quote. And, and I think Charles Taylor, this is a perfect description of what he's doing. It's, it reminded me of an old quote that he's taking to a, a better and more profound place. Um, C.S. Lewis at one point wrote, Nothing strikes me more when I read the controversies of, the, of past ages than the fact that both sides were usually assuming without question a good deal which we should now absolutely deny. They thought that they were as completely opposed as two sides could be, but in fact, they were all the time secretly united. United with each other and against earlier and past stage stages by a great mass of common assumptions. And I think what the brilliance of this book is, is that Charles Taylor isn't looking backwards per se. He is literally looking around the world that we are in this very moment. And for whatever he misses, he's giving a helpful, accurate, you know, language-rich description of what we're all kind of going through when it comes to figuring out how to be good people or how to be in this world, you know, meaningfully. And I, and that, I don't know, I, I think he succeeds on that front. And so that's, that's a lot to throw at you. But I, I guess maybe I would say, did you find his description of, you know, impaling ourselves on one horn or the other, this issue of dilemma and kind of similar positions in a bigger struggle, did you find that convincing or was that where he lost you or anything? No, I, I think that, I, I think the metaphor he used a lot was is fragility that I really liked. He talked about how this, this state of, ex, uh, of the imminent frame that we all live in, right. Puts us in a state of fragility of beliefs. That doesn't mean that we don't have strong beliefs that we believe we're committed to. Right. Right. But again, this, his major point of secularity three, which is the one he's really talking about is that we, we can't, get away from the understanding that this is one possible belief among many. And even if we believe it's the 100% correct, accurate, 100% thing, we understand not everyone else is going to view it that way, and we're going to still be embattled in that position in some way, right? Yeah. Like, And, and so this concept of fragility uh, of belief, uh, which is related to this concept of sort of being stuck between two horns, right? Uh, this constant awareness that these things are it's just more complicated in some ways, right, to, to have a position or even to try to explicitly not have a position. Right. Um, which I, I think I, I found very compelling. And I, I would be curious to know what somebody who is not not only a Christian, but is a Christian who has a, a lot of other philosophical uh, common ground with Charles Taylor, as it turns out. You know, what, what would a, a non-Christian or non-virtue ethicist or even by Jove, someone who is both, what would that person <laughs> think of this book? I would be curious to know uh, because I, I, I do think that at least the majority of the book, Oh, like first 650 pages, basically, right? I think it's, it's not that you don't know what his position is, but it's not 
is clear with a lot more of the sort of descriptive historical project. Right. But then the last 200 or 150 pages or so is when he really, he does talk more about, well, we have a dilemma and like, not how am I going to solve this dilemma? He's not nearly that cheeky, but sort of like, here's the sorts of things that occur to me about it. And of course, at that point, you're talking about a contingent reality, right? To connect something else, <laughs> yeah. right? So of course, he's going to talk about his, a little bit about his view on things. And he doesn't ever right. preach. It's not like he says, that's so what you have to do is fall down on your knees and accept the Lord Jesus Christ as your savior. He never <laughs> says anything like that. But he's talking about like the Christian, a potential Christian answer to this, a way, a potential way forward for Christians in this space. And he's, if he's perhaps not as concerned about a potential way forward for non-believers or whatever, I don't think we can fault him for that. I think he's described the debate and then is talking about the thing that interests him most after that. You know what I mean? <laughs> I totally agree. When I, and I will say what, what I found interesting is I, I definitely wanted to know what someone who didn't have, I mean, I actually would be interested in like someone not only who wasn't a Christian, but I, I, I kind of had a hard time. I'm sure it's happened because again, this book won prizes. People are reading it. But I'd be curious about someone who won wasn't Western at all, right? Like, what was the Chinese philosophy? He won yeah. the he, he won the Kyoto Prize. So, I mean, you know, like, I'd be curious what like you know a professor from Asia would make of this. Um, and I would definitely be curious of someone who never had kind of faith in their life, like just as if like if I became kind of you know, and at one point I probably was on the way to this in some ways. If I became an agnostic or even atheistic, you know, just intellectual person who had an evangelical background, there's still a lot of common language that he and I share, yeah. you know? And I'd be curious about someone who had never had any background, what they would make of some of this. Cause it does strike me as a book. And I, I think he's making objective points that like are useful to consider as a person alive in the West, no matter what your belief system is. But I also think it's a book that I think I said it really early on in some ways. Yeah. It could only be written by someone of faith in, in some ways, because he looks at the usual linear narrative of secularization, which says that we just shed stuff and that there's going to be a heat death of religion. And he says, what I mean, in some ways, I am the counter example to that just by existing, right? I am a Catholic yeah. who is still around. And so I think when you begin from that entrenched position of saying this can't be the whole truth because it totally elides my experience of the world, you know, that's where the whole book starts from. But at one point, he, he does say that, like, it's never completely answered. He, like, here's ways that Christianity can address some of these concerns. But within the imminent frame, the answer will never be conclusive, right? That Christianity is going to solve its problems outside yeah. of time. And that the, the other solutions can't solve the problems inside of time. And that's part of their whole philosophy. So he, he does kind of like the mutual fragilization theory. He takes it seriously. He doesn't ever say like, this is the only way forward that is good. He just says, here's the trade-offs that you have to consider. And yeah, here's how transcendence might offer you something. The imminent frame, you know, can't, if you just stick with it. But at the same time, like, it also won't solve the dilemma through and through, which I found again, like it was a point of his honesty, but it also, I think it keeps the rest of his work about, you know, the past and the modern moment. It keeps it sort of objective, not because he's denying a viewpoint, but because he's saying my whole project can't give you a closed answer. I want to skip ahead to a potential objection, which I actually don't think I put in the outline and I don't know why. A lot of this book is about what it's like to be a person in certain times and places and how it's changed, right? Like we've talked about. And we've already hinted at this a little bit, but one one question I had, and there's no answer to this because I think the answer to this question is, yes, that's why history is hard. Uh, but I, I left uncertain about exactly what 
he talks about you know what it's like to be a right. person in fifteen twenty London or whatever. But of course, how do we know what it was right. really like to be a peasant yeah. in fifteen twenty in the countryside? They mostly didn't write things down, right? They were mostly illiterate and mostly didn't write things down. So our sources are based on people who were, by the mere fact that they could read and write, often different. But even if you know, and and almost never came from a real peasant background. Like some people didn't have a lot of money, but they were had become monks or yeah, you know, were yeah. from lesser noble houses, you know, that kind of thing, right? Writing about what they saw the peasants doing and what we've picked up from like cultural hand-me-downs. And I, so I wonder to some extent, you know, we, we talk about what they could or could not conceive of. And I think that's a reasonable project, but I also wonder, like, we really just don't know really what they thought. And to some extent that's true today too. Not only because of course, nobody can ever really understand another human being because, you know, life is hard. But also, I think a lot of the sort of the common people, right, and it's, I mean, I don't like that phrase, but you know what I mean, like the sort of most people you meet on the street, like they don't necessarily write down this kind of stuff, they don't necessarily think about it, but when you actually talk to people, people are just generally much weirder, I think, than we give them much credit for. It comes up all the time in terms of voting. Uh, you know, people, we, we, we tend to divide people into like right or left or to say, well, these kinds of issues are important only to these kinds of people. But if you actually talk to just a random guy at the bar, they tend to be just much weirder than that. Like I said, they, they tend to be a, a, a hodgepodge of beliefs which we might right. think are incoherent, or they, they probably aren't, right? They're probably just not organized the way that we tend to think about things. Or again, you know, I, I deal with a lot of uh, generally very poor and un, uneducated people in my day-to-day work. I'm a public defender. Um, at any time, I, I might think I have a guess as to right. how somebody's going to respond to something. I mean, I'm wrong half the time in terms of what I think my client is going to think about some political or social issue, which obviously I try not to talk politics, but like stuff occasionally comes up. And like, I'm wrong all the time. And so I wonder to some extent what, sometimes I'm skeptical of projects like these. Yeah. Because I just think people are generally mysterious. Uh, and so I don't really have a coherent answer. Like I can't point right. to anything in particular and say, I think you're wrong because of X, Y, and Z. But I just, I guess I, I want to put an asterisk yeah. on kind of this whole, I think it's a valuable project anyway. Right. But I'm always just like, I, is this really what it's like to live in 2020 i mean it feels familiar to me but how much is that i mean i'm 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 a weird guy like i don't know (laughs) you know to the extent that this book has like obvious gates around it that keep certain readers out right it's size it's topic it's language it's whatever um it, it so it is a way in which like a really easy reaction to this which i think he could dismantle in some ways is like just like in a lot of his um, analysis of history, he's describing like um, Thomas Carlyle's opinions or, you know, Darwin, of course, or Matthew Arnold. And he talks about, it's like, I know that yeah. and he, he says, like, I'm using these as like representational figures um, who are both important in changing the conversation, but who are also just like representing that ideas were already out there before such an, you know, like he's usually, he's usually using them as like to d- disrupt the narrative that he's rejecting. But the point being is that, it's a certain class of thinker. And so there's a really easy argument to be said that like this book resonates because this is what it feels like to be alive for a certain person who's obsessed with these kinds of questions, <laughs> you know, and who wants to articulate them. And, and what's interesting is I'm not yeah. sure, like, like you're saying, like I think the project is valuable beyond these narrow reasons we're discussing, but even with this, within this like kind of narrow mindset that we're discussing, um, I find the project valuable in the sense that like, okay, well, who is out there shaping educational or pulpit ideas? Like there's at least one book I know of by a bunch of like fairly popular, famous 
Christian intellectuals, like evangelical intellectuals, one of whom I know you know at least is Alan Noble. But there's like a bunch of those guys who are like, they're all like kind of important in the evangelical world. And they wrote a whole book of essays responding just to Charles Taylor and trying to sift out what he means. And of course, they're taking these ideas to classrooms and to pulpits and whatever else. Like it's almost, as I say this out loud, it is almost sort of a trickle down idea. Um, which I don't think works in economics, but maybe does work culturally. Right. <laughs> and I, but I think that I, I but genuinely, I, so I feel like it's a weird way in which even to the extent that it is missing all these people, which I think is probably one of the more valid objections to it, that, you know, it's written for a certain kind of reader and in some ways is about a certain kind of reader's mindset, arguably it's, you know, yeah, it's still going to impact the people who are kind of defining the next wave of how we think about how we think. But yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I, well, and since we're on objections, do you want to do you want to do a few more? We, we have some listed here. <laughs> Actually, that's my biggest one, which is why I don't know why I didn't write it down. I think that was my biggest. Also, it's not really an objection because it's not you can't really say it's something wrong with the project exactly. But it's also like that said, you know, yeah, and that's because it's true of every kind of history, right? Like it's so I, I don't think it's unique to this book, but I, I do think it's important to bear in mind, right. particularly because I found so much of the book so convincing, right? That I need to remind myself this doesn't. I don't think it's wrong exactly, but there's still a lot of people that really yeah. may or may not recognize anything that's in this book. Well, and, and also half of it's in French. Yeah, God. <laughs> well, no, but what you're really saying is like, to what extent? Because he, he's making the argument that these cross pressures specifically are, like you said, you should think of it like a wind. It's almost like a, it's not natural, but it feels like a part of your natural mental environment almost, right? And of course, the argument is that it's the, and and I've already made two cases. I I said, I saw an angel. I actually think Camus' sort of uh, heroism against the absurd, I think that it's not one-to-one, but it's clearly present in um, the Avengers, right? You know, Thanos says, I am inevitable. You know, Iron Man says, I'm Iron Man. But it's this way in which none of these people are superheroes. They're all, like, self-made or given strength, but they're all within the imminent frame, <laughs> and they're fighting against impossible odds, and it doesn't matter because Thanos, to the extent that he obviously represents death, he literally is inevitable, right? Like, everyone Iron Man says dies, you know, like 30 years later or whenever um, because death happens. The point being is, like, yeah. These ideas are definitely transmitted out into popular culture, so he can make an argument about that. But um, but yeah, to the extent that these are cross pressures that you have to be aware of to feel, I think maybe that there's there's more truth to that than he might admit. That like these cross pressures, they aren't just you know in the atmosphere of conversation to maybe the extent that he thinks they are. And, and maybe not. I mean, it's hard, because like some of the stuff he articulates I didn't know about, and I still responded because he articulated something I felt without always putting words to it. And I, I think this this is an idea which I, I had sort of hinted at also in my objections that I wanted to talk to you a bit about. He talks a lot about the... He calls this sometimes the age of authenticity, as though kind of the, the over overriding sort of moral obligation is to go figure out what works for you, right? And he's far from the first person to yeah. talk about that. But I think it's I think there's some meaning to that. But actually, this is connected to what we were just talking about. There's not a lot of discussion of, like, pop culture in this book, right? No. Um, there's really not much <laughs> at all, which is fine. The book's about everything else. But when I think about the sorts of things that shape our social imaginary, our popular unconscious, particularly in the latter half of the 20th century and the beginning of the 21st, yes. I think pop culture is really important, right? I mean, he yeah, talks a bit true. about fashion as a way of like mutually 
like making statements to each other. But, you know, when you talk about the Avengers, I mean, you're right. To, to the extent the Avengers has any ideas, that's going to reach a lot more people than, you know. Right. <laughs> everyone in the world saw the Avengers movie, right? Uh, and, and I do think, and I've talked about this before, the book, I think, loses some focus at the very end. Uh, the book basically ends with a deep dive into the poetry of Gerard Manley Hopkins. As every book should end. Who died in 1889. And I, I know what he's doing, because he's, Hopkins, he's parsing Hopkins through as a sort of a conversion story and why he wrote what he did. And it was a really good read. Uh, I don't know a ton about Hopkins. I know you know everything about Hopkins. But <laughs> I, I, I do think it's kind of funny that a book, you know, getting to our modern era, ends with a, 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 deep, a couple of deep dives into 19th century poets. Yeah. No, and I point. think it's partly because... You know, Charles Taylor's a million years old. I'm not sure how hooked in he is to modern pop culture. That's fair. <laughs> but I would be curious to know whether that would change anything. And again, that's this, I, I talked before about a lot of my objections are, I don't know if he talked about this, and I wish he would have because I'm important, <laughs> rather than it's a problem with the book. Right. But I would think that understanding how pop culture deals with some of these questions would be a really valuable project, at least. I totally And I'm not agree. sure if it really would change any of his answers, but I'd be curious to know what, what that would look like. Um, also social media, but that didn't mostly, that didn't exist in the same way in 2007. So I'll forgive him that. No, I, I do think though, it's one of the, so like the, uh, the popular culture, the age of authenticity. And I would say like, yeah, the social media, 2020 hindsight, those are the areas where this book actually does feel most dated. Um, you know, we, we were going to talk about this at the end kind of, but I, I think it'd be okay to talk about it now a little bit, which is that, um, the age of authenticity specifically, um, we're having a moment right now in some ways where like collectivization is, is happening at a higher rate than it has for a century, arguably, or since the last, you know, like kind of like big up, you know, upheaval of the pre-World War II interwar era, right? Like people are like joining teams and assigning teams. So this age of authenticity, it totally fits within that model, but there's a way in which like, I do think the story of who we are right now has already warped some since 2008, and I think it's warped along lines of collectivization and social media, which I think are obviously intertwined in ways that would actually, I think, fit within this narrative really well. It would just expand it, which we kind of talked about. And I think you agree with that. Real quick, to circle back, I didn't have a lot of objections. I, 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 did, I did have a really hard time letting go of some of his dismissal of material concerns um, at the very beginning, at least, because there, the, part and part of that's what it means to be alive right now. And actually, it does fit in with the idea of social media and collectivization, where like I feel like in this moment, I can pick out ways in which certain technologies have advanced certain trends, not of their own accord completely, but that it would be unimaginable for it to happen without them, right? So because he talks about you know the the, the printing press and the cafe and stuff, like creating a public square that's sort of like, you know, almost a mental space more than it is anything else. And like clearly Twitter and Facebook, more Facebook than anything, have done that in our age. They've created a new way to be public. Um, and, I, and, I, and I think sometimes, sometimes he minimizes the materialist concerns to make his points in a way that I, I feel like does a disservice basically to like how much we are shaped by our available technical resources of expression, right? Like I think on a limited scale when it comes to my beliefs, partly because if I'm a peasant in 1500, like I'm not talking to anyone from India on Twitter about soccer, right? Like that's not part of yeah. my experience. And so of course that 
would then cause a shift in what I think it is possible to believe just because of the experience. So that'd be like, okay, that'd be the last thought about maybe objections that he might do a little disservice in an effort to really defend his own points. So, but I also wonder, I mean, so I think this book was written in 2000, published in 2007, but the lectures were given like earlier than that, right? Like the late nineties, maybe. Yeah. 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 I think 99 latest, like, yeah. And so I think about, you know, that's the, Bush era years, and I, that's when I was sort of learning how to think as a human being, right? Right. You know, in that sort of like mid two thousands, there was all that like really hardcore evangelical versus uh, atheist stuff. It was huge. I mean, it's, it's never true. stopped being huge. But I think about like the the everybody had to go to Reddit or whatever the pre- precursor was to learn <laughs> about common arguments to make against your the creationists in your class. You know what I mean? Like yeah. there was a that whole community of like hardcore atheists and hardcore apologetics. I mean, God, even I mean I. Well, we I, I we were in it, yeah. some of it, but I, I I did some of that, you know. I like how, what are what are, the, what are the arguments here? I can learn to beat these atheists with their like who cares? you guys are fifteen, go outside for God's I know, sake. I know, but <laughs> well, with the, but the, but it is funny because it's actually actually one of the hallmarks of our relationship is that like you know you were a, a little younger than me, but we were in the same grade, and I like I I remember in high school being self-aware that we like as a little group but also like me and you in particular and me of course like i was more aware myself that we were coming out of kind of one phase of belief into a new phase you know what i mean like and it was awkward and transitional and i couldn't necessarily articulate some of the things i was changing my beliefs on maybe until a few years later but i i, I there's a few points junior year and senior year specifically and actually, I have one really huge one sophomore year that was like socially <laughs> instituted. I got like dragged for good reasons, and I was like, I should think about what I believe more. <laughs> but it, but it is interesting that like I do. So this book definitely resonated partly because, like you're saying, maybe some of that polemical stuff is not as forceful in this moment, or at least not as like culturally a big deal. But it did, st- yeah. It's it definitely shaped you and me. Um, in certain ways, at least. Um, and I, I recognized myself in certain problematic ways in the text, you know, sometimes. But I also recognized, I, I also found relief when he articulated, like, you know, here's a faith that you could come to and that we should be recovering from these other, like, nostalgic traditionalists. And I kept thinking, like, yes, that is a really good point, And I want to hold on to that. So we're getting towards, I think, the end of our podcast here. Um, Book this big. I, I I think I often end up doing this, and I think Joel's going to do some too. But we're just like, here's some other stuff I liked. You know, two seconds on each of them. Uh, so I, here's just some some fun things, fun ideas, or some fun lines that I, I noted. Um, he talks a lot about our social imaginary, which is actually it's not his word, so I can't fault him for it. I really hate that word. Like I don't understand. It's not a noun, guys. It's not. <laughs> <laughs> it's an adjective. But it, so social imaginary is sort of like a collective unconsciousness, right? It's yeah. sort of the social rules we move through. And he came up with a really great metaphor, which he just doesn't talk about much, but I think it's his because he doesn't cite it. He talks about it as a repertory or like a, briefly, like a collection of lines and phrases and like like when you're an actor and you have repertory theater and like, yeah, I can do Hamlet. Give me five right. minutes, right? He, he does. And I, I think that's a much more useful way of thinking about it than social imaginary, which is such a terrible word um, so I like that <laughs> I didn't and I'm going to call it a social repertory from now on I didn't know you hated that that's funny I, I, I liked I that I encountered it in like Deleuze or something and I hate it uh, <laughs> maybe not Deleuze somebody in that time frame in my life when I was reading a lot no, of it's, in the, it's definitely from the 80s which was a different time um, there's a couple other just random sort of small ideas here 
He talks about how there was a big obsession with apologetics, first to prove the existence of God, but also a real obsession with like theodicy, uh, which is the attempt to reconcile God with the problem of evil, right? Right. In like the 18th century and the and so on. And he talk, one reason he says basically is and I, this isn't a quote exactly, but theodicy is harder to harder to care about too much when the world is very mysterious and you're worried about demons and stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, which I thought was a, a kind of a fun point, which again relates to the disenchantment of the world more than other things. Like it's it's theodicy becomes a harder problem when you think you understand how the world works right our 13th century peasant doesn't pretend that he knows how the world works it's beyond him and he knows it and so like there's a problem here he's like yeah sure there's lots of problems i don't (laughs) yeah well actually sorry i know you're doing quick things but i i have to read a quote on theodicy because i i liked i liked it enough and you and i have talked a lot about it um he has this great quote on 232 where he says one can always be induced to question god's rightness after all abraham and moses started way back arguing with God about his intentions, which is a funny way to think of it, by the way, going on. Yeah. But, the cert- <laughs> but the certainty that we have all the elements we need to carry out a trial of God and triumphantly yeah. acquit him by our apologetic can only come in the age of the world picture, oh, which is a Heidegger term, which, again, is kind of a terrible word. But I, I, it's, it's what you're saying, but I, I love that because it does kind of capture the shift perfectly when everything is terrible and things are accosting you, why would you question it? It's what the world is. But as soon as like reason ascends to a certain status, it's like, well, we should be able to explain everything. And it, I just thought it was a perfect summation, but sorry, keep going. One other quick thing. Uh, I, you hear a lot of people talk about how, you know, well, atheism requires religion to exist, right? You, like it's not a new idea, but he, he phrased this as a certain kind of unbelief requires the perfect tense. It requires having yes. overcome something. Certain forms of unbelief, uh, require not just something to define themselves against, but also having a sense of having left this behind, right? A, a historical sense. And I think that's a, I think it's a really fun way of thinking about it. I also, it caused me to think briefly about how certain political movements can only require the perfect tense. You know, why should you vote for the Democrats? Well, because of the Civil Rights Act. Um, right. Like, what, like <laughs> America is good because we've overcome all of these things that were bad about America. Right. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm going to just leave that there. But I always think somebody else said something like that on Facebook. It's really funny. You know, America is great. We got rid of slavery. And I was like, well, OK, now here's a quick question, though. <laughs> <laughs> that's a really good. Anyway. That's a good. That's a good example. <laughs> um. I like his description of religion serving as a reserve fund for contemporary life. Uh, he talks about people in France who are like, uh, France as a nation is very a-religious, except that uh, lots of people still have like funerals and stuff still in churches because it's a, right. it's a reserve fund of stuff you can pull from. I think it's partly also because where the heck else are you going to have it? Uh, to be but fair. That's still related. I mean, it, we <laughs> haven't replaced it with anything. So I, right. I think that makes sense. Yeah. I, I would say, again, I could do five more of these briefly. He says at one point, all joy strives for eternity, right? He's talking, it's actually, it's actually related to like a Nietzschean concept. Right. Um, also, but of course, joy being connected to eternity is a C.S. Lewis thing, right? That's Very what joy much means. So. Joy, is, <laughs> joy is not just happiness. Joy is also partly sad because you're having an experience of eternity. So anyway, the final thing I wanted to sort of random thing I wanted to point to here is he talks about a difference between uh, the deaths of, of Socrates and the death of Christ in terms of what it means to like sacrifice or give up worldly goods or worldly flourishing right yeah socrates is like i'm really not that worried about it guys i'm going on to the next best thing bottoms up right whereas that's not exactly the christian perspective on human it's not just that sort of a platonic like yeah they don't really matter at all don't worry about it like that's actually not really the christian take it's they do matter they don't matter as much as but like jesus doesn't say 
all right, guys, I'm out. Like he he weeps in the garden of Geth. You know, you know what I mean. And yeah. He no. Takes, yeah. Like this cup be taken from me. Like he's scared of it. He doesn't want to. It, it, he's got to do it, right? But he's he's. It's much more uh, much more recognizable human experience, frankly, than Socrates giving a speech and then drinking a bunch of hemlock, right? And I, I really like that as the difference between sort of the the Christian take, or at least Taylor's what Taylor thinks the Christian take should be, I guess, on human flourishing. Is it's not that it doesn't matter exactly, and it's not that these things sort of the sort of human things we're concerned with are aren't important like sacrificing human life does matter it's right. sometimes worth doing anyway right but, but it, it is in fact a sacrifice of a meaningful thing yes. rather than just yeah. getting rid of an illusion and i thought I, I don't think i'd ever heard anyone specifically make that connect comparison between the deaths of socrates and christ before and i really liked it so those are some I, of my shotgun fun things in this <laughs> i feel like yeah i mean I, I feel like i have i have so many things we could talk about more like we could talk about all the political stuff we didn't get to he, he continually i think sums up certain tensions that we're still experiencing um in, yeah. inclu- including like there's a whole bit that i was going to do on like there's a certain kind of conservative called the post-liberal, which I won't get into, um, but he kind of he captures it. He has these great phrases like the market is the negation of collective action, and he does a riff on you know the Smithian invisible hands. Um, he even has this great mm. quote on protests, and it's specifically attached to Tiananmen 1989, but um, I will read the quote out loud. He says about protests, the action is forceful meant to impress, perhaps even to threaten certain consequences if our message is not heard, but it is also meant to persuade. It remains this side of violence. The point of this act is to invite tyranny to open up to a democratic transition. And I thought, one, that was just a great way to put it. And and two, it was a great instantiation of like our modern ideas around human flourishing and violence, that we have these limits on our thinking that we're even in our resistance we're trying to still kind of keep a hold of but he's got all kinds of stuff I and mean, he even has he even goes to do an aside on um charles moras or Marat, i think from the you know 1920s basically of, of france he has this quote which is um he was this reactionary who wanted to bring back the monarchy Marat, and he uh and a lot of catholics were behind him even though quote um, he animates a movement which mainly appeals to Catholics, but he himself is not a believer. Marat's belief is that France can only be great again under the monarchy. I mean, come on, come on, Bill. Yeah, that's. Well, I mean, that's, that's that. That's that's the analogy is like a slap in the face. This is written, you know, thirteen, fourteen, twenty years ago. Well, I like. I mean, he, he talks a lot about how Christianity got connected with like civilization right partly yes. because of the process of reform right but also just stuff like the french revolution would happen and all of the surviving nobles would be like holy cow well that was really atheist <laughs> and i'd like my neck to be stuck on my shoulder. so i'm gonna make everyone go to church uh, yes <laughs> uh and, and i think about that all the time with one of the there's a really weird brand of reactionary out there and they're kind of like i think of them on the internet i think like the richard spencer types you right yeah uh this sort of weird neo-nazi sometimes not exactly i mean like i think it's meaningful to call them that but it's not exactly right you know what i mean yeah like a, a sort of bizarre often violent racist reactionary that is trying to harken back to this european past and they always they will reference things like judeo-christian civilization which of course is not a thing but anyway regarding, <laughs> never mind that right and and they will reference these sort of but it's never like they're not they don't they're not really religious, right? They don't right, go to no. church. They yeah. don't talk about Christian stuff. There's just this sort of weird connection with a sort of high church Christianity and the glory days when nobody was mean to them for being dumb. And I, I like Anders Bering Breivik, who's the Norwegian guy who shot up that, right. killed all those people some yep. years back, right? 
like his manifesto has all these i guess i haven't read it but like my understanding is has all these weird references to like christian civilization but nothing about his not just that like you can't kill people like that and be a christian which you can't but i don't just mean that i mean nothing else in his philosophy is animated by any relation right. to any meaningful version of christianity it's just like a thrown in thing i guess again i haven't read it but this is my understanding <laughs> and and this is like it's such a weird thing but i think i think he identifies as again like oh, your guy totally whose does. name i can't already can't remember but this that there's this weird way that christianity gets thrown in as like a building block of civilization by people who don't care don't, about it don't at care all. about it at all yeah no well that's i mean it's literally what we're seeing right now i think right i mean we're seeing a mobilization yeah no it's exactly right yeah, yeah. it's and it's, and it's and you know, it, it was it's crazy to not only come across it you know 12 it was, this book was you know published 12 years ago or whatever but like the, for him to diagnose it through history in a way that i can say oh my gosh, this is a direct line to where we are now. It, it was part of the work of the book that kind of, you know, ripped me out of the chair. Like, what is he? Like, he 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 knows things, Bill. He knows so yeah. many things. <laughs> <laughs> other, other actually fun ideas. Um, since I'm just going to, I'll blow them off real quick. One, he talks about how noblemen routinely wrestled with their peasants. That's awesome. That's straight out of Monty Python. <laughs> yeah, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> he also talks about if someone was to be transported here from the 1500s and they were to go to a movie with us, they were they would think we were out of our damn mind for watching movies about their actual horrors, such as demons. No one from 1500, he thinks, would sit through a film about exorcism when they themselves are living in that fear. And I tell you, I very, very agree with this. As someone who maybe or maybe doesn't believe in possession, I don't like possession movies. I can watch other horror films. I have a hard time with possession possession films. Um, but I also like that he just kind of said they would think we were out of our mind. And the last thing is that this book is so big. There are so many treasures in it. And he makes time for so many little things, so many big things. But he has this aside at one point about hell where he basically uh, preempts David Bentley Hart, who's a popular theologian thinker. Um, David Bentley Hart had a book come out called That, that All Shall Be Saved, um, which I think is not actually the best book. But here, Charles Taylor somehow makes time to argue for a sort of cohesive Christian universalism. Quote, Hell, the ultimate separation from God, must remain a possibility for human freedom, but the presumptuous certainty that it is inhabited must be abandoned. I, I mean, like, how do you have time for that in this book? I mean, I know it's a long book, but it's so many convincing, pithy asides inside so many long, almost aggressive arguments that it can give you whiplash. But I also found it kind of invigorating to find a new nugget that I just could hold on to. I also would. So I, I like that a lot. I would also briefly say two things in response. One, it reminded me of, I think this is C.S. Lewis. This might be one of those moments where I hallucinated something. <laughs> I do that sometimes where I had an idea when I was 15 and thought it was in a book. I think it's C.S. Lewis. I can't remember what in. Where he, he says that, uh, you know, he talks about how there, there are probably pains in heaven, but, you know, oh, that we should get to experience such pains and probably pleasures in hell, but oh, that we should be spared of s such pleasures, right? Right. And I think he has a line in there about how if the door to hell is locked, it's got to be locked from the inside. Yes. Yeah. And that's C.S. Lewis, right? I didn't make that up? No, you didn't. <laughs> okay, good. And I've always thought that was a really meaningful way to think about it, which I also think is, is really... Uh, 
similar to what he says here, Taylor says here, I also like this because it corrects the only real problem I have with Francis Bufford's otherwise perfect book, Unapologetic, which is when he's dealing with the problem of hell and says, anyway, Christians don't really believe in that anymore, moving on. And I'm like, well, okay, Francis, except that's just not true at all. <laughs> it's true. It's true. And you know what? I'm, I'm glad you brought up Francis Bufford because we almost did a two-hour podcast on basically Christian ideas without mentioning the reason sort of that we have this podcast the great francis bufford yeah. Un- unbelievable unforgivable good save but anyway i just, I just would like that charles taylor dealing with otherwise i think a, in some ways a similar i mean not a similar project obviously but i i suspect they would have a lot they would agree on about i life, think so yeah everything. uh i still appreciated that he doesn't say that because i i know you're writing from england francis and i guess i don't know for sure how it is there <laughs> but i don't think you can say that christians have abandoned the idea of hell uh, I don't think you. I don't think that's true. Maybe it should right. be. I'm not even making that statement. No, but I don't no, think no. it is true. Yeah, <laughs> agreed. What a book, huh? Yeah. So I think. Yeah. I mean, I guess. I mean, I think we should maybe come full circle. And um, you know, I, I kind of made a joke earlier that I, I needed to make a pitch for people to keep listening because the book is sort of meaty, you know, and it is. It is a lot of summary and kind of looking stuff up or whatever if you want to but i i guess maybe i would like to end on you know yeah did you find this book worth reading are you glad you read it and would you like who and i guess would you recommend it and to who <laughs> is there anyone besides I'm me glad I read it. <laughs> sorry i don't know who i recommend it to exactly i mean i'm certainly cur- i have friends who are very, very thoughtful about this sort of stuff. Same. They come from very different philosophies. I'd kind of be like, would you read this? And I'll like pay you to do it. Right. I want to know what you think. Yeah. But that's not exactly the same thing as a recommendation. I found it useful, not only for, there are some moments when I found it very sort of personally convicting, like we were talking about. Right. I don't think that's the reason to read the book. I think there Agreed. are books that are 850 pages that might be more useful if you're looking for inspiration. But uh, I found it very useful as a, a collection of tools and ideas as I'm thinking about things. Uh, I started the book like a long time ago. The book took me a very long time to read. I don't want to talk about it. Same. Um, and in the time since, uh, I've come across already things in other books or things and ideas I'm seeing out in the world. And I, I'm drawing on sort of a quiver of ideas from Charles Taylor, whether or not I necessarily even completely buy them. I, I think it is a, a helpful book for making sense of some of these questions and ideas and uh, historical facts. So I, I think it's it's sort of book that is very worth reading because I think you come out of it better equipped to deal with these kinds of questions. You know what I mean? I do. Well, uh, I, I the way that a, a lot of the great works of philosophy feel like that. Even if I like I, I don't agree. Actually, at this point, I agree with J.S. Mill about very few things. Actually, honestly, but I think about million frames of reference all the time now as I move through the world, and I'm very glad I did. Does that make sense? It does. Well, and I and I I think um, I was maybe happy to encounter. A lot of the philosophy he does, he aims it at lived experience. You know I mean, which, which is in the yeah. end, I think the goal of all philosophy, right, is how do we become better people? How do we love the right things or whatever? That, that's at least what I think. Of course, virtue ethics, yada yada. But um, that's what Plato thought too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, me and Plato be. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, but so for me, what you're saying is specifically. Uh, a quiver of like language right certain phrases certain ways to capture succinctly and quickly ideas that i don't always have language for um even this idea he gets at early on in the book that in some ways what is he what he is trying to describe is what in philosophy is called background sort of this it's, it's sort of this it's so expansive and so 
broad a canvas of what we live against that it's hard to break it down into any constitutive elements. And even that idea that there is the, the well, actually you made a joke earlier, like don't use the word phrase worldview, a phrase I also, or a word I also don't like, but it's, it's, it's hard talking about ideas or about mindsets without kind of recurring to these stale and or inaccurate, you know, cliches. And I think he really enlivens, yeah, my own sense of how to describe things, including my own beliefs, which I think is part of his goal is to maybe narrow what you think and why you think. The other thing I would say is it's actually related to a question that I was almost going to ask you, which, you know, he, he, he does in a lot of ways. This book is a work of great of synthesis, right? He is constantly taking other ideas, combining them, making something new. And he's explicit about this, right? He's borrowing from Benedict Anderson. He's borrowing from Max Weber. He's borrowing from Martha Nussbaum so forth, so on. And so I was going to ask you at one point, like, oh, after reading this, who do you want to read? And I already told you jokingly, like, my answer, like, I, I have a list of people, but also my answer is, like, none of them. <laughs> I want to break for a little <laughs> bit. But also, the, the beyond the jokey answer, my answer partly is none of them and all of them. None of them because he is so good at summarizing difficult ideas. Like I, I, I have never read all of being in time by Heidegger. I gave up because the professor basically said, learn German to read it. And I was like, I'm not going to learn German to read this. Um, <laughs> but he, but he spends like four paragraphs at one point and I won't go through it now. Totally reinvigorating my desire to understand Heidegger, if not read Heidegger. And so in a weird way, like, I want to read more than ever these people he's referencing. At the same time, he so pithily summarizes and deploys their ideas that I also feel more confident, like, talking about Heidegger. Um, and not that that's not maybe a reason to read it, but I do think a big book like this, one of the challenges is to, like you said, kind of reference things without totally losing someone who doesn't know that reference. And I think this book does a great job of of introducing and also maybe even covering other thinkers that like I'm literally never gonna have time to get to. You know, I don't have time to read Eamon Duffy, Max Weber, Charles Pagai, whatever. Like I don't have time for all these people. You know what I mean? Like I'm trying to do things besides read big philosophy books. And this book covers a lot of that ground. And I think it's useful as a, a, a condensing and synthesizing of those ideas. So yeah, man, pretty big book. Pretty big book. I would say that uh, it did make me want to read some of this other stuff. I don't know if I will. Like you, like you said, I'm going to give it a break for a while. But uh, Ivan Illich, or however you say his name, I was interested Definitely. enough in that uh, Good Samaritan thing that I, I need to figure out who that is and see if he's got anything that's in English and isn't 1,100 pages long. <laughs> like, remember how when we did the uh, Coast of Utopia, and we were like, man, I'd really kind of like to read Alexander Hertzen's biography, and then realized there's been <laughs> one translation of it ever, and it's like nine volumes long. It's so like, that long. is a desire that is never going to be fulfilled, <laughs> much as how... I once desired to play the lead in a Broadway show. I, I, you could, it wouldn't be done. true to say I don't desire that, but Goodbye. it's also not going to happen. <laughs> Amen. Amen. No, I agree. I actually already bought. So I have a friend who's a who's a big history buff, and he he says Benedict Anderson's uh, The Imagined Community is like the best book he's ever read. So I actually bought that because I finally I had to text him and be like. Hey, it turns out you were right. It sounds like Benedict Anderson's an important person, so I'm going to read it at some point. Do you know how I first heard about Benedict Anderson? Uh, my friend Jim Ralph, who was one of the best writers the Ontological Geek ever had, uh, and I, just, I, yeah. hope, I hope he's out in the world doing well, uh, wrote 
an article about why Skyrim could meaningfully be understood <gasps> as a nation under the rules of Benedict Anderson. That's book. right. And I haven't read Benedict Anderson, but I was like, God, that I think that's I think that's meaningful. I mean, you wouldn't literally do that, but that's a really fun idea. I forgot. So, I read that anyway. article. I remember that article. Wow. I, for, I did not remember him referencing Benedict Anderson. Although now you say that, I remember like him referencing the rules of a nation. That's that's interesting. Well, let's talk about what we're going to read next, which is not a thousand-page book about religion. Uh, it is. We talked about I, the last two years. I think our hard book has been the last book we did each yeah. year. Yeah. Um, you know, we did Black Lamb and Gray Falcon, which was wonderful but difficult, and War and Peace, which was wonderful and difficult. And then we did this one third, and it's the hardest book I've read in years. Same. I don't know if I've talked enough about how much this book just kicked my butt. Like, Same. <laughs> it really did. Worth well, doing. I don't mean that. I think but. we we talked like on Tuesday. And I think you were the first to say, like, I didn't read basically anything else in September. And I was like, yeah, no, me either. Not much. Like, I didn't, like, I read a little bit. But, like, basic for me and for you, basically nothing else. And that wasn't even the only month I was reading this book because it's October. Yep. No, I, uh, yeah. So uh, it's a good book. It is a project. Uh, not, again, not because it's, like, I actually think it's probably pretty close to as clear as it can yeah, be. Yeah, like, it's, it's pretty not like accessible. You're Hegel where you're like, what why is this like this yeah like i know why this is like this uh it's just hard it's just a lot um, it's a lot but so we're reading next we're going to take a bit of a break and we're going to do something which at least theoretically shouldn't be quite as <laughs> difficult it's only 570 some odd pages instead of uh 700 plus uh and it's a novel we're going to read freedom by jonathan franzen because i realized i'd never read any franzen and joel's only read one franzen i think and yep. franzen is famous and important and maybe we'll hate it it's possible but uh it's been uh, it's a really well-respected book. Uh, it's it's one of those books which is like about a family and stuff happens to them. So I don't know as I have a good summary until after I've read it. Although Joel, I, I have to tell you guys this. Joel, uh, <laughs> right before we started this podcast, he said, I have to let you know, Bill, that he's a big bird watcher. <laughs> and so there may be a lot of bird watching in this book. And I said, I don't understand why you gave me that disclaimer. Do you think I have some sort of hatred of bird watchers? And we had a fun little gag, uh, a little vamp on that for a while. But I just now looking at the... Just just now looking at the, the Wikipedia page, there is a bird on the cover, and the like third paragraph of the Wikipedia summary says, The cover of many editions of the novels includes a cerulean warbler, or however they say that word, a songbird for which one of the characters works to create an environmental preserve. So I apologize, Joel, there appears to be a significant <laughs> amount of bird watching in this book. I shouldn't have sassed you. <laughs> it was, I, honestly, it was just funny. It was purely funny what you said. Um but also, bird watching, I think, is boring. It sounds boring. So, I don't, and also, he gets a lot of fans, and he gets a lot of crap for his bird watching stuff. So, we'll see if we like this book. I just didn't have any context for that. <laughs> I mostly know Jonathan Franzen for saying stupid things and essays for Harpers and stuff like that. So, I, yeah. I wasn't really. <laughs> yeah. Well, now you can read a whole book about it. <laughs> I'm excited though. I mean, I no, I, I, I am. I'm, I personally am pretty behind on a lot of the major like litfic writers for the last twenty or thirty years, or fifty or sixty. Really, actually, just the whole, the whole, yeah, the whole thing. So I'm glad to cross cross another one off my list. Uh, so we'll be trying to do that in December. We're a little behind because this book was a real, uh, a real good chore, but a chore nonetheless, you know. And so I, I think we're going to try to do this. So hopefully, it should be easier book, but still try to do it in December so we don't eventually end up doing our yeah, we'll, 2022 we'll podcasts it. in 2024, you know? <laughs> yeah, so. no, we'll hit it in December for sure. So thanks for sticking with us if you're still listening to us. And if you're not still listening to us, I guess you can't hear what I say, so I don't have anything to say to you. Um, <laughs> Go read a book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, loser. Anyway, th- thanks for hanging out. Uh, Joel, thanks for doing this podcast. I really you enjoyed too, it. Man. Talk to you later, man. 
Thanks, as always, to Keenan and Lily LeBlanc, uh, good friends from Syracuse, New York, and even better musicians, for letting us use their track Water Song for the intro and outro to this podcast. Uh, this podcast can be found basically wherever you want to find a podcast. iTunes, Stitcher, so forth, so on. If you like the podcast, uh, leave us a review and hopefully a good one on one of those sites and tell your friends. Thanks, as always, for listening, and, you know, as Bill says, we'll see you later.